This is episode 54 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his third appearance on the podcast. He's a writer with the Cult of Hockey, Bruce McCurdy. Bruce, welcome back to the show. Hey, Eric, how are you tonight? I'm good. You know, it's uh, it's good to chat with you again. How was your summer? Oh, very good, actually, for the most part. I mean, it's still COVID world, you know, and it's... Uh, it's a lot of flat screen, but I get out into the real world every day. I got a I got a uh, walking regimen that I stick to uh, uh, as a central core of my existence these days. It gets me out into the three dimensional fresh air world for an hour, an hour and a half a day, and uh, that's keeping me more or less sane. <laughs> I think I remember hearing you mention on Low Tide's show. Maybe it was over a year ago that you haven't missed a day in the pandemic. Uh, that's correct. That's correct. Yeah, I recently hit a thousand days in a row, and that oh, wow. was a, yeah. So uh, I'm up to after today. I think a thousand and twenty-eight, and it's occurred to me that the Edmonton Elks have not won a home game on any one of those days. <laughs> that's a not tough break. Pressure on, but that's a long time, Elks. I can tell you from personal experience, a thousand days is a long time. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I'm not an Edmonton Elks fan, but I I am a, a fan of uh, Edmonton sports too. So I uh, hope that for your city and the fan base, that that drought won't go on too much longer. Right on. No, that's it's time for that to end for sure. And Bruce, uh, because the Oilers made it to the Western Conference Final last year, it's a much shorter off season than we've been used to over mm-hmm. the past 16 years. Are you starting to get the itch for hockey to be back? Oh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, we we go through our emotions at the at the cult of hockey every summer, but this year we didn't do. Usually, we do player reviews, or we used to always do player reviews of all the regular players for the season. And this year, we just didn't have time to do all those. We did a few of sort of key players, players that might be on the uh, uh, on the move, you know, or, or uh, on the on the on the way out, or 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 at least at a critical turning point. But uh, uh, once the playoffs ended, I mean, the Stanley Cup Finals was the next series, and then the draft was already right away after that. And then we got into our, you know, our August routine of uh, doing the top prospects, and we're just counting that down. We're just getting down to number one tonight. And I'm going to write the series wrap for that tomorrow night and uh, as a sort of a preview of the uh, Young Stars Classic in Penticton that starts Friday, and then it's going to feel like hockey. And for anyone who hasn't checked out uh, the series yet, uh, I've been reading your posts, and uh, I just want to know, will you give us a spoiler of uh, who is number one? Well, there's only one guy left, so I, uh, this is a real spoiler. It'll come out tonight anyway. Probably David will have his post up before this podcast goes. Uh, so unless you can shut me up quicker than that. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, going to be Philip Broberry who's number one. And uh, with a, and a squeaker over uh, Dylan Holloway. I mean, when you're looking at two first-round picks that were both mm-hmm. taken in the top 15, it's it's pretty close there. I mean, you're really having to compare a forward to a defenseman. But I would say at this stage, I would probably give the, the edge to Broberg as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's Stuart Skinner at number three. And then two more first-round picks in Xavier Borgo, a number 22 pick. And then the young fellow from this year, Reed Schaefer, a number 32 pick. Mm-hmm. So that's five, in the top five, four first-round draft choices. And bear in mind that to be eligible for our list, you can't have played in 25 NHL games yet. So 
this idea of Ken Holland taking it slow with young players, it's true. He does. <laughs> Well, let's hope that what Ken Holland uh, is building is similar to what we're going to be talking about tonight. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bruce, it's the 35th anniversary of the Oilers' 1987 Stanley Cup victory, as well as the 1987 Canada Cup. So let's start with the Oilers' quest to reclaim the Cup in 1987. And unfortunately, that journey began with a shocking elimination the previous spring by the rival Calgary Flames when Oilers rookie defenseman Steve Smith accidentally banked the puck off Grant Fuhr's leg and into his own net in Game 7 of the 1986 Smythe Division Final. Bruce, after winning back-to-back -back Stanley Cups in 1984 and 1985, how much criticism did the Oilers face after that devastating loss to the Flames in 86? Well, they faced criticism on a number of fronts. There, there was, uh, I mean, this idea that somehow they were fallible when it seemed like, I mean, the previous year is still considered the team of the century in terms of the NHL's uh, voting on that subject uh, on their uh, 100th anniversary. Uh, and the idea that they would get beaten by anybody anytime soon seemed uh, almost laughable. Uh, and Calgary Flames, I mean, they did have a they did have a good team. They had a real good coach. He had a real good game plan. Uh, they played Edmonton hard, right? They couldn't skate with Edmonton for his speed, but they sure could skate with him in races to the puck and battles. And and uh, they gave the Oilers everything they could handle. And it really the series came down to who's going to get the break. And I mean, obviously Calgary did get it in a very unexpected and tragic, frankly, way to decide anything of that uh of that import i mean the orders were that goal away from winning five stanley cups in a row and playing montreal Canadiens all-time record is one takeaway from it another takeaway is that without that loss maybe they wouldn't have had the impetus to come back hard the way they did the following two years uh to make it four out of five uh but there was also there was a story in sports illustrated there in june of uh 86 or may of 86 even uh that casts uh cast some orders in a bad light and there, there was there was rumors of uh partying and you know certain types of drug abuse and reuse at least yeah I, I use i believe abuse i don't believe and that's you know there's a, certainly a significant difference between that but uh they were party type guys they had a lot of fun playing the game and i'm sure that fun didn't end when the game was over and, uh, you know, they had a lot of sort of uh, uh, swashbuckling characters on that team. And someone got into trouble at various points in their career. And uh, Glenn Sather had a hard and fast rule that when you do get into trouble, your first phone call is to me. And he would be the fixer, right? The cleaner would be uh, Glenn Sather. So we probably don't know the half of the stories that went on but on the other hand this is a small community in edmonton and mm -hmm. a lot of people went to bury teas you know so <laughs> <laughs> at least not everybody had a damn cell phone that was taking video of it right and somebody got out of line but uh, you know it was uh uh they the boys could do you know there, there was very little they could do wrong in this town by the time they'd won those two stanley cups and they were huge mega stars right across the hockey world, let's face it. I mean, that team was absolutely, a, uh, a, you know, one of the great teams of all time. In fact, like I say, the greatest team of all time, according to the NHL itself, was the 84, 85 orders. So to lose in 86 the way they did and losing three home games in that series 
And you know they never even had they never once had the lead in that series. And by that I mean they never had a, a nose in front. The only games they won were games two, four, and six when they were trailing in the series. They got the leads in those games. What all that would ever do is win them the game and even the series. And in games one, three, five, and seven, Calgary scored first. Having to tie it up a couple times, they tied it up in game seven with a two-goal yeah. comeback to tie it two-two. But they never once got their nose in front in that series, and it was always. I, I had a bad feeling about that series from the beginning, and it just never went away. You know, Calgary was, uh, they were kind of like uh, what Dallas Eakin said about uh, Will Acton, the smell that won't leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, on top of that, they were really, a, they were probably the, the opponent I hated the most in all the time that the Oilers have been in the NHL. That team with, with uh, Neil Sheehy and Paul Baxter and Gary Suter all on defense. Yeah. Mike Vernon and net, you know, guys up front like Jim Poplinski, Doug Risebrow, you know, that was, that was not a fun opponent uh, to play against. And there were some dirty players on there. And then there was the deal of Cliff Fletcher uh, after 85, after the Oilers, uh, um, uh, cleaned up in the playoffs and scored a bunch of goals on four on fours. Change the rules. Cliff Fletcher said, "Well, these guys are too good. We can't have that. Let's change the rules. So let's <laughs> make it so that there's no more four on four. If there's a double penalty, then you just stay five on five." And the league passed the rule. And sure enough, in that series, you know, Calgary gooned it up quite a little bit with the guys that I mentioned already. And every time there was a double penalty, which is quite a few times. Instead of being four on four, it'd be five on five. And I made kind of a habit all that year because I was kind of pissed about that. Just as a hockey fan, I thought it was detrimental to the game. You know, I thought that different right. manpower situations, really one of the interesting things about hockey is you, you, you have a multitude of different manpower situations. And this one took a very fundamental one out of the game or mostly out of the game. You still got a four on four if you took one penalty and then the other team took the next penalty on a different play. But... Never for the t- full two minutes, and you know, uh, and so that worked for Calgary, which kind of added insult to injury or injury to insult, whichever way you want to put it. Because they, you know, part of their tactics was to literally go after the rule book, you know, and it's uh, more than a little frustrating that uh, that it was successful for them in the very next season after that happened. So. I was not a happy camper on April 30th, 1986. I have to admit, I left the Coliseum in a very embittered frame of mind. I can imagine. (laughs) And Bruce, uh, that in 1985-86, the Oilers had one of their best regular seasons, finishing 56-17 and seven. However, because of that loss to the Flames in the playoffs. Was there any doubt that summer among the fans and the media about the Oilers' chances to get back to the top of the mountain and reclaim the cup the following year? Well, there was, I'm not sure if I call it doubt, but I certainly will say questions. And like I say, some of them were raised by Sports Illustrated. And whether valid or not, I mean, it certainly raised a cloud of a cloud of doubt and suspicion. Uh, and it was, a you know, a, a, certainly the... Uh, challenge was set you got to come back and you got to do it take it all the way and you got to you got to win whenever that last game is you got to win it skate off with that cup that's the only way you make that smell leave the room and in a way it still hasn't but it's you know it certainly it certainly was a cleansing event to uh 
to cop that cup uh, the very next year, right in, the, in in our home building again. To bring it back to current day too, does beating the Flames in the playoffs this past spring sort of uh, make it go away even a slight amount? <laughs> oh yeah, that's still fun. Now it's five to one, right? I mean, uh, it's five playoff series to one in the six battles of Alberta. That was that one in 86, that anomaly in 86. is the only one that uh, that went Calgary's way. Well, the one this year was the only the second one I've been alive for. But uh, oh, yeah. the the one the one the one in 1991, I was two years old, so I don't have a lot of great memories of that series. Um, but to see that the series this year in 2022 and similar to how the 1991 did series with an overtime goal in the Saddle Dome was quite sweet to see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And to end the series with an overtime goal in the Saddle Dome. I mean, that's actually happened three times now from a Calgary perspective. Uh, in 88, the famous sweep in 88, uh, uh, the last game in Calgary, which was game two in that series, right. Gretzky scored a shorthanded, very famous goal over Mike Vernon's shoulder on a shorthanded slap shot off a Curry feed. Uh, and then uh, in 91, of course, Tikkanen ended the series in overtime game seven in Calgary. And then now this year, uh, McDavid ended the series with an overtime winner again in Calgary to uh, uh, put them out of their their misery. So (laughs) that's kind of a nice hat trick of goals to to reminisce on. And uh, some pretty great players involved in those goals, too. Absolutely. And for my generation and even the generation younger than me, I think having a playoff moment like that where we got to see the Oilers beat their arch rival is something that... Mm-hmm. This fan base needed for a long time because there were so many tough years over the last 15 seasons and um, to just sort of have a, a, a great playoff moment like that and to get back to the Western Conference final was especially great, I think, for the younger fans. Yeah, well, Oilers beat two great rivals in the playoffs this year. Los Angeles Kings, you know, they've, got, they've true. provided plenty of pain for us over the years. Uh, the 82 uh, uh, weak need Wimps series, the... Uh, uh, the of course the acquisition by the Kings of Gretzky in '88 and their subsequent beating of the Oilers in uh, in seven games in '89, and the Oilers they met four years in a row immediately after that trade in the playoffs and the Oilers won in '90, '91 and '92, uh, but that first series that the Kings won and they've they've caused their a lot of misery you know during the decade of dark, darkness the Kings were one of the teams that were constantly laying it to the Oilers just physically pounding on them, you know, out shooting them 45-22, you know, winning 5-1. And there's just so many games like that to beat the Kings and to do it in a, you know, dra- dramatic fashion with McDavid scoring the huge goal at the end of that series and the celebration that he showed then. And then, of course, to do the same in uh, the final game against Calgary, again, with McDavid being the, the central player. Uh, and again, an almighty celebration, which had to... Uh, uh, had to lift the hearts of any Oilers fan, whether those hearts are beating or not. There's probably a few, a few long-time Oil fans that got a jolt of satisfaction. Oh, without doubt. That night, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bruce. Well, I'm sure you could provide a detailed report on every player on the 1986-87 Oilers, but we'll keep it mostly to the Hockey Hall of Famers tonight, sure. which is still a fair number on this team. And I think we should start with number 99. 
Um, eight uh. years into his NHL career, Wayne Gretzky had already established himself as the greatest offensive player in the history of the game. Gretzky won his eighth consecutive Hart Memorial Trophy as most valuable player and seventh straight Art Ross Trophy as scoring champion with 183 points in 79 games in 1986-87. And while it doesn't represent Gretzky's greatest season from a points perspective, it was no less dominant than his 200-point campaigns as he captured the scoring title by an astonishing 75 points over his linemate Yari Curry. The Great One also scored a league-leading 62 goals. It was his fifth 60-goal season, which tied him with Mike Bossy for the most in NHL history. And in typical Gretzky fashion, he finished with more assists than anyone else in the league had total points that year. Bruce, this was the fifth consecutive season where Gretzky won the Art Ross Trophy by more than 70 points. Mm -hmm. No other scoring champion has ever won by even half that margin. Is that perhaps the best way to describe Gretzky's dominance over the rest of the league at the height of his powers? Uh, Yeah, that's, that's certainly one way to do it. I can tell you from 1981 to 87... So we're actually discounting the scoring championship he won in 80-81, setting a a new NHL points record of 164 points. But he only only won it by 29 points. As a 20-year-old. We're tied at the midseason mark, and then Gretzky just took off and uh, ran away with it by 29 in the second half. And from then on, it was like every half season he would win by 30-plus points. And it was uh, 65, 72, 79, 73, 74, 75. I mean, this is year after year, consistent domination of very nearly one point per game above the second best scorer in the National Hockey League. Right. And you used to see ridiculous stuff, and you'd see it in this season in particular, uh, where the guy in second place, his line mate, Yari Curry, with 108 points, uh, he would probably be closer in scoring to the guy in 200th place than he was to the guy in first. Because <laughs> it was just that kind of ridiculous a, a gap where, like you say, uh, Gretzky had more assists than anyone else had goals by 13, and he led the league in goals. So, you know, put those two together, it was the fifth time he, that he won both the goals and assist crown in, in six years. And only the oh, previous year that he had... Uh, he went crazy for the assist record, and he got 163 assists, and he only scored 52 goals that year. So uh, he uh, did not win the uh, what would have been considered today the uh, Rocket Richard Trophy that one year. Curry would have got that. And the other years, Gretzky won both. And, you know, this was, uh, you'd think, well, 62 doesn't sound like much after four 70-goal seasons, but the scoring in the league was starting to come down. And you could see that. I mean, 183 is still a lot for first, but 108 for second is, you know, you see players nowadays that are, that are, you know, putting up more points than that and losing the scoring championship, like uh, like uh, Goudreau, Huberdeau, and Drysaddle this past year. They all had more than 108 points and, uh, uh, and didn't win the scoring title. But still, Gretzky was that far ahead of the field at uh, 183 points. And uh, just... Uh, uh, absurdly good uh, um, season all around. And he did struggle in the playoffs, Gretzky, this year. I mean, he led the league in scoring, as he always did in the playoffs, but only five goals, uh, 29 assists, 34 points. It was a little off his usual mark. And, you know, he got uh, 
He got a concussion in the playoffs. Uh, Dale Howardchuck in the second round bounced his head off the ice. And, and uh, uh, Gretz didn't have a lot going on in the conference finals. And he was starting to wind it up again in the in Stanley Cup finals. But uh, just sort of a couple of, uh, you know, a cork below full. Let's put it that way in, in those playoffs. So I'm not getting ahead of myself on that comment. But uh, he was still... Very much the uh, the dominant superstar in the league. I mean, you said it already. Eight heart trophies in a row. Right. <laughs> eight years in Edmonton at that point in the league, and he won the heart trophy every year. That was hockey life for fans in Edmonton uh, who are a little older than yourself, Eric, was we didn't know the NHL, the heart trophy winner on any other team but ours. And considering that the first one he won was at age 19, it just makes yeah. it even more remarkable. Indeed. And Bruce, after watching Gretzky play in Edmonton for the better part of a decade by this point, were you still just as amazed by his scoring exploits and the records he was setting? Or, or was this just what you had come to expect from number 99? Uh, both. Definitely both. I, I, I come to expect uh, him to to just simply be in a league of his own, and he still was, but that didn't mean that he didn't astonish us on a regular basis with uh, some of his individual feats, you know, within the play of, you know, how the heck did he get that puck? You know, how did he see that guy? How did he see that passing lane? How did he execute the pass so perfectly that it was a tap-in for for Curry or Coffee at the power post or, or what have you? And that kind of stuff was always, I mean, I learned from early age to when he was on the ice, one eye was on him. Like I wanted to know where he was. I tried wherever the puck was or where's Wayne, where's it going to go next? Because it seemed to always go next (laughs) to him. (laughs) And when it did, he didn't necessarily have it that long, but good things tended to happen very, very quickly thereafter. Yeah, and I can imagine you saw him hundreds of times mm-hmm. during his time in Edmonton. 500, uh, I reckon. 500. Yeah. Do you think you could count the number of bad games he had on maybe one or two hands? Uh, he had bad games. He had average games. And the thing that he did that was kind of kind of shocking because of how consistently he did it was he'd have a game you say, well, geez, you know, he didn't really have the magic going on tonight because he didn't every night. And then you look at the score sheet and you have a goal and two assists. <laughs> You know, and I just still pump up the the points just by just by the doing the fundamental things, and of course having such snipers on his team, and of course uh, all the critics will tell you all the worst goalies in the history of humankind. Yeah. Which I got news for you: the 1980s was just like all the other decades. The National Hockey League had the best goaltenders in the world then. That's too. right. I think there is a little bit of a lack of appreciation for the fact that these were the top goaltenders of the league by some modern fans, but they still have to remember that they were wearing pads that were half the size and twice as heavy as what goaltenders get to wear today. And I don't have the stats in front of me, but I would imagine the average goaltender at that time was around five, nine, five, 10, as opposed to six, five that is currently playing in the NHL. Yeah, there were relatively few monster goalies. Uh, the style of goaltending was still very much the stand-up style. And I'll say Wayne Gretzky was uh, one of the main, primary reasons they exposed the stand-up style as not being workable. And what he would do a lot, 
he scored a lot of goals just like this where he would uh, he would come into the right face-off circle and he'd cut through the middle of the ice going kind of parallel to the to the goal from the right circle to the left. And he'd get the goalie moved, shuffling his feet coming across the, the crease. And as the goalie would put his weight on his on his left foot, because Wayne would almost always be going left to right on this play, Wayne would just shoot the puck right along the ice, right beside his pad. And because the guy's weight was on that foot, it would take him a split second to, to shuffle back, and by then the puck would be by him. And he'd look at it and say, geez, it wasn't even a hard shot, but it was more like <laughs> he, he passed the puck into the hole <clears throat> just beyond the goalie. And he, he had this phenomenal awareness of the, you know, what the physics of the opposing player, you know, how, how to catch him on the wrong foot. He did it constantly, where you got the guy, you know, turning or whatever and wayne would take it the other unexpected way and the guy would just be dead in the water and that included goalies a lot definitely and bruce while gretzky was rewriting the nhl record book during the 1980s his line mate yari curry was creating his own legacy as one of the best european players of all time Curry finished second in the league in points with a 108 and tied for third in the league in goals with 54 in 1986-87. It was his fifth consecutive 100-point season and fourth straight 50-goal season. Uh, Bruce, for those who never saw him play, how important was Curry to those Stanley Cup winning teams in Edmonton? Oh, he was phenomenal. And he, I, I've I've had the occasional argument with someone saying that Gretzky made Curry, and without Gretzky, Curry wasn't that much of a player. Which, frankly, Curry uh, himself went a long way to dispro- disproving between 1988 and 90, after Wayne left Edmonton, and the and he kept scoring, and the team kept winning. Um, but uh, his his partnership with with Gretzky, uh, he had everything you wanted uh he didn't necessarily need to have the puck uh he was quite happy to sort of patrol his his wing take that you know play higher uh, on the defensive side of the puck uh, but materialize in in the open slot for for uh, uh for passes you know when when where he was the deeper player but frequently he was the guy who started to play curry was just such a great defensive player could separate uh, opponents from the puck. And his first look always was 99. Let's get it up to 99. And uh, that famous overtime goal against uh, Mike Vernon is one such example. If you ever watched the uh, replay of the uh, first Stanley Cup win in 84 against the Islanders, Gretzky scored the first two goals from Curry and no one else, where both times Curry was responsible for getting the puck and getting it going in the right direction and on the right stick, namely Gretzky's. Uh, but it was his stick also that finished so many plays. I mean, you mentioned four years in a row, uh, over 50 goals. And every year the Oilers were in the playoffs for their first uh, four championships during the Gretzky years. Curry led the playoffs in goals all four years. All four years. And just always seemed to have 14, 15 goals in the playoff, 19 the one year. And he was just such a deadly shooter. And, and in combination with Gretzky being such a phenomenal passer, uh, he would have high percentage shots and he would make them count. Here, I'll give you, uh, Eric, uh, uh, this is Curry's shooting percentages from 82 
two. This was the first year he scored four, over 40. He got 45 goals, 20.6 shooting percentage, 26.7, 26.6, 28.8, 6. Those are the four 50-goal seasons he wow. shot over 25% in all four of those years. And then 20.8 and 20.6. We had seven years in a row where he was over 20%. I mean, this was a elite shooter. He wasn't like a high, huge volume shooter, you know, 200 shots a year in that range, but 55 of them would go in the net. And he, he did it just consistently as a, as a finisher. So between his terrific ability as a passer his underrated ability as a puck carrier, which we saw more of only after Gretzky left, uh, his uh, his defensive game, his ability to separate opponents from uh, the puck, and a big part of the Oilers team, uh, they used to call it, they used to talk a lot about the transition game, the transition from defense to offense, which the Oilers excelled at. Well, if you ask me, one person who personified the transition game, I see Yari Curry. Uh, front and center. Uh, <laughs> I remember being at a game once. Someone asked me what 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 was Curry's vital statistics. You know, looking for six one one eighty five or whatever. And I said two hundred by eighty five because <laughs> 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 he just seemed to. You know, he he was an all ace player and a wonderful, wonderful player and uh, uh, such a gracious man. He was quite happy, sort of being the second fiddle. Yeah, because uh, he was second fiddle on a pretty famous band. You know, and and. Uh, uh, you know, he got his share of glory, and it wasn't all reflected glory. He he earned all the credit he got, and then some. He was uh, certainly one of one of the uh, great European players to ever play in this game. Still, and uh, at that stage, of course, he was still in sort of the early generations of that. He's the first real Finn uh, to uh, to achieve uh, 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 such such a high level and. Really, still Timo Solani, and I'm not sure there's many others that are in the conversation. I mean, he's just a the ten years he was in Edmonton, uh, just fantastic. Ten years, one thousand and forty-three points, one hundred hundred four points per year. That's not bad at all. <laughs> Over the course of a decade, um, and, and Bruce, you mentioned what a fantastic defensive player Curry was, which allowed Gretzky to concentrate on offense. But because he was such a fantastic goal scorer, mm-hmm. do you think that Curry was often overlooked for the complete game he played? I do. I think he should have won the Selkie Trophy, and he probably should have won it more than once. Uh, and especially now, they they like crediting offensive players uh, and the you know two way players for the Selkie. Well, he was all of that, and uh, you know he was uh, uh, just an absolutely wonderful penalty killer. Curry was, and uh, he and Gretzky were just so deadly uh, on the PK, um, and they played as a pair a lot, and they scored a whole lot of points on the power play. Check now on his career, Curry had uh, 31 shorthanded goals, 35 shorthanded assists, and uh, he was... (laughs) Yeah, you know, on this five, three, six, five, three, five, this is consecutive years, you know, five a year kind of thing. And and he was uh, um, he was the guy Oilers uh, say they would choose in a three-on-four or three-on-five penalty kill. If the Oilers were only one forward on the PK, and it would be Curry, even though he was in the center, and so he might be a disadvantage in the circle. But 
he just he played such a, 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 a almost perfect uh, flawless positional game uh, that he could adapt to any situation man advantage man disadvantage four on four no worries he was uh, always where you wanted him to be and needed him to be without a doubt all right uh playing for his hometown team mark messier became one of the best power forwards in hockey history and the heart and soul of the oilers dynasty messier would have been the first line center on most teams across the league in the mid 1980s but because he played on the same team as gretzky he was the second line center in edmonton uh messier finished third in the league in assists with 70 and tied for third in the league in points with 107 in 1986-87 which were both career highs for him at the time and while he was a tremendously talented player messier was a dominant force both physically and on the score sheet wasn't he bruce yeah very much so yeah he he was a real uh real wild card in that uh he he would uh, uh lead the way in any number of ways he was kind of an emotional leader of the team certainly on uh, uh often it would be on the nights where things weren't going well that he would uh he would fire up the old engine and uh, try and get the tide turned uh he was a big time uh scorer i mean 37 goals that year it was i mean he had 50 and 48 goals early in his career when he was playing left wing but it was his conversion from left wing into back into the middle of the ice to his natural center position in 84, in the spring of 84, that led to the first Stanley Cup win and to Mark himself winning the Conn Smythe Trophy uh, in the playoffs that year. But he was, a, he was a regular threat. He had six 100-point seasons in his career. Uh, but what he also had was, I'm just counting here, six, seven... 100-minute penalty-minute seasons as well. So he could dish it out. He was, uh, and the bigger the game got, the more physical he became and very much playing on the on the uh, periphery of, of the rules. Let's put it that way. Uh, where And probably crossed it refs, at times when too. The refs, yeah, when the refs let him play, well, he would take advantage of that. Let's put it that way. And, and uh, uh, he'd, uh, he, he, uh, he, uh, uh, he wasn't a guy to be messed with. And by 87, uh, this would have been after the Jamie McCown incident where uh, Jamie McCown of Calgary tried to run Messier through the uh, through the end boards of uh, Calgary Corral. This would be 84, 85. I'm just looking at his games played. And I know he missed 10 games to the suspension he took for getting even with McCown that night. Uh, but you know what? From that night on, nobody messed with the guy at all around the league. And in some respects, he reminded me of uh, Gordie Howe, uh, which is tremendous praise. Uh, uh, I would choose Howe as the, being the better player, uh, but not by as much as you might have supposed at one point. And, and it's both guys, it took them like a couple of years to, to establish their space for themselves. And then once they earned the space, they really learned to take advantage of it and, you know, uh, put the puck in the net, set, set goals up, but still also have that physical edge to them that um, uh, that uh, made them stand out uh, like the ultimate power forwards. And ultimately, uh, uh, Messier did, in fact, pass uh, Gordie Howell for what was then second in the all-time scoring race. After Gretzky passed him in 89, uh, uh, 
Messier, Messier became the second person to pass Gordy Howe, and then Yarmer Jager. In 2003, yeah. Joined the... Uh, Joined the list. Yeah, it took Messier a few more years than Gretzky to get to 1851, didn't it? Well, it, more years. <laughs> it, it, sp- it speaks to Gretzky's dominance that Gretzky did it before the, the 80s were over and Messier yeah. got there early in the 21st century. century yeah. <laughs> uh, Messier was also regarded as one of the greatest leaders in NHL history because of his intense win-at-all-costs attitude. Despite the incredible talent on the 1980s Oilers, how valuable was his ability to bring people together in the pursuit of a common goal? Well, it's hard to know exactly what was going on in the in the room, but I mean, it was pretty obvious uh, to all concerned that there was a, a you know a core leadership group, and uh, <clears throat> besides Gretzky, who was wearing the C, and of course leading in all the statistical categories. Uh, both Messier and Kevin Lowe were seen as being really sort of core, sort of face of the team kind of guys. You know, you want to beat the Oilers, you're going to have to go through these guys. Good luck with that. And it was, uh, <laughs> they were pretty imposing to say the least. I mean, Messier's uh, performance in game four at Chicago Stadium in 1990 was one for the ages. And of course, everyone remembers uh, his guaranteed hat trick against the well, his guaranteed win night against the Devils in uh, in uh, Game Six in '94 when Messier personally scored a hat trick in the third period to win that game. I mean, talk about putting your money where your mouth is. So he came up big in crunch time for the most part, and he always had great totals in the playoffs. Like his his points per game went up in the playoffs, and most players you see that go down. Uh, the checking gets a little tighter. You're not playing so many weak sisters, and yet Mark would always be uh, be higher among the scoring leaders in the playoffs than he had been in the season. So he was a uh, he was a big game man for sure. He saved his best performances for the biggest moments. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And playing alongside Messier, Glenn Anderson tallied 35 goals and 73 points in 1986-87. It was his seventh straight 30-goal season with the Oilers. Uh, But, Bruce, it was the timing of those goals that cemented him as a key member of the powerhouse Oilers, wasn't it? Yeah, he was was a big-time goal scorer, and he scored, uh, and I'm sure we're going to get to it, a a very famous goal in the 87 playoffs. Uh, But he was a... Uh, he was a game breaker, and, and a pretty mercurial, kind of unpredictable guy. Uh, but what you could safely predict was that again, when the games got bigger, he got better. He got more focused, and he uh, uh, he would bring not just his A game, but his A plus game. And the combination of him and Messier, almost invariably on the same line, as a second line for other teams to contend with after they've been. Uh, you know, minced and diced by Gretzky and Curry. Okay, now you get to go against these guys. <laughs> and Messier might put you through the boards, or, or Anderson might have one of those accidental sticks come up and clip you under the chin. You know, it was uh, uh, the boys played for keeps. And a- Anderson, I mean, one, th- one thing, one of his, this isn't recognized as a record, but I recognize it as a record for the Oilers. He scored a hat trick, overtime hat trick. In the sense that three consecutive uh, playoff overtime games for the Oilers, Anderson scored the game-winning goal 
or Edmonton. And it just took him, uh, let's see if I got this right, uh, 46 seconds, 64 seconds, and 36 seconds. So it was like a hat trick, like a minute each game. He'd put him out in the first shift, he'd score. Let's go home. <laughs> and it was three different playoff years. Like the Oilers were dominant enough, they didn't need to go to overtime very often. Right. So it was like 85, 86, and 87, I think he scored a, uh, a, an overtime winner in each of those years. That, um, uh, that was in in success, you know, in consecutive games from the Oilers' perspective. That he uh, he broke them up and he did so fast. Oh, for sure. Um, and after winning back-to-back Norris trophies as the best defenseman, Paul Coffey was limited to just 59 games in 1986-87 due to a back injury. However, he still managed to put up 67 points, but it was a significant drop from his 48 goal and 138 point season a year earlier. Bruce, how big of a boost did it give the Oilers to get Coffey back after missing a quarter of the season? Yeah, he was in and out, as I recall. I mean, he missed a bunch of time uh, at once, and then, but when he came back, it seemed like he was never quite hundred percent. And there were sort of question marks: Will he go or won't he? And he'd been taking a pounding for a few years by then, of course. But this was a a back injury, and uh, a wonky backs are difficult things to deal with. And you know, after I mean, he'd scored. Uh, not just 138 points the year before, but 121 the year before that, and 126 the year before that. So just a fantastic three straight 120-point seasons. I mean, not even Bobby Orr did that. And he was second yeah. only to Gretzky in scoring in '84. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So he was uh, uh, he was a, uh, uh, a big-time offensive defenseman. I've heard some people saying that Chris Pronger was the best defenseman Oilers ever had, and I think. In the fullness of time, and I like Chris Pronger plenty in terms of what he did for the Oilers, in terms of his sort of natural, sort of defensive game, doing everything in the book and doing it well. Uh, but Coffee was kind of one of these outside the mold guys, and he brought so much offense to the game that made up for the occasional foible on defense. And I mean, he was a big time outscorer. He was. Uh, uh, Plus over plus fifty four years in a row plus fifty four years in a row, and so he was uh, 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 he too was a uh, a threat on the penalty kill. He was a huge gigantic threat on the four on four. That was where he particularly would bury the other team. Just envision any situation where the other team comes in on a two man rush. Fear Moog makes the save, or the shot goes wide. The puck comes up the boards. And you've either got Gretzky and Curry, or you've got Messier and Anderson coming back on the ice on two-on-two, except you've got Paul Coffey blasting up the middle of the ice to make it a three-on-two. And how do you like your chances? (laughs) I liked them fine. The puck wound up in the net a lot. And he was a big part of that. He wouldn't necessarily be the scorer, but he would be the guy that would overload and sort of create the, the odd man advantage. Uh, create the you know the, the the puzzle of the problem for the defensive players, and to do that at 100 miles an hour, such a such a uh, phenomenal skater he was that uh, he just chewed up the ice, end to end. 
You talk about full length of the ice. Uh, I would I would match him up against uh, certainly any defenseman in terms of end to end speed. Right. Uh, do you recall who stepped up and played more of an offensive role with him out on the blue line for uh, a large chunk of that season? Well, it was a little bit before uh, Steve Smith, uh, who ultimately became the Oilers' power play quarterback and put up a couple of of uh, 50 points plus seasons. Uh, Coffee, even in this bad season, was plus, uh, or sorry, 67 points in 59 games. Not bad. Uh, but uh, uh, Kevin Lowe had some decent sort of secondary offense. Randy Gregg had some decent secondary offense. Uh, but mostly, uh, it was the forwards that uh, that carried the scoring load uh, in uh, in eighty six eighty seven. Who you got in mind particularly? Rayho roots Lanen at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> points in sixteen games, not bad. <laughs> Uh, and Bruce, speaking of Kevin Lowe, on a team stacked with offensive superstars, Lowe established himself as a rock on the Oilers' defense and as the most competitive blue liner. He would punish opponents in front of the net and in the corners while still putting up 37 points in 1986-87. So even though the Oilers were scoring 400 goals per season for half of the 80s, how important was it for them to have a player like that who was just solely concentrated on defense well he certainly was that was his uh, uh that was his sort of claim to the, the team was his defensive play he actually entered the team as the first round draft choice the first in history of the oilers uh as a, something of an offensive hot shot in uh, uh in quebec and he adapted his game to uh, uh, and he sort of realized early on, you know, he looked around and he said, you know, we've got a few guys that are probably going to put a lot more pucks in the net than I do, but I don't see too many guys that are uh, that defensive oriented. That's what the team needs. That's what I'm going to do. And that was the impression uh, that we got at the time. And I think he said, pretty much said as much that, you know, his, his first priority was uh, keeping the puck out of Oilers net. Uh, and, uh, but he certainly was a threat to score, and you know he was a th- he was a threat to score uh, at important times. You know, if the orders were blowing some team out, he was content to hang back and just you know chip the puck up and you know clear the zone, make the head man pass. But if they were down three to two, four minutes left in the third period, and all of a sudden some guy materializes off the blue line that no one's expecting because he doesn't usually do this. That would be Kevin Lowe. He had there's some sort of art in his game to be to be, and again that's a huge compliment coming from. Oh yeah, I thought Savard was an absolutely wonderful player. Definitely, and in goal, Grant Fear posted a 22-13 and three record in 14 games in 1986-87, finishing third in voting for the Vesna Trophy as best goaltender. This was also his last season, splitting the time with Andy Moog between the pipes, and. Fear was always a goalie that cared more about winning than his individual numbers. But as good as he was in the regular season, Bruce, Fear consistently elevated his game in the playoffs, didn't he? Uh, very much so. He was a, another one of these guys that would, uh, as the games get big, bigger, he would elevate. And he was, uh, 
uh, he was always in the sort of mentions of being a possible, uh, con, you know, in contention for the Con Smythe in the playoffs because he'd be, a, you know, a big part of the uh, of the team along the way. But invariably, he would play second fiddle or third fiddle to Gretzky or or Messier or uh, that one year uh, a coffee was involved. But they they would talk about uh, Fears. Ability to deliver in the crunch. To uh, I mean, I remember one year he was first star of the first four playoff games in a row. Oh wow! And sort of got as the team was sort of getting up to speed, he was keeping them in and winning games for him. And then then they took off. I mean, that's even more remarkable on a team. Yeah, and I mean, when you think about how much talent they had at that time, for the Mm -hmm. goaltender to be the first star Mm -hmm. four games in a row, just kind of speaks to how well he was playing. Yeah, well, they swapped the Kings that year, 85, in the first round, three-game best-of-five series. And he was the dominant player in that series. Uh, but um, he, he was, uh, he raised his game in the crunch. And, I mean, he was coming up towards his, you know, his greatest season would have been 87, 88. But like you say, in 86, 87, he was still sharing time with uh, uh, with Andy Moog. Moog actually had the better one-loss record in the season. And they're... Save percentage goals against were almost soft, but uh, say they preferred Fuhr in the in the playoff games. I think in part because he was uh, he was a significantly better puck handler mm-hmm. and uh, very good at fielding pucks, uh, hard shootings, and so on around the boards, and very proficient with the stick, uh, making uh, uh, outlet passes or just getting the puck in a good place where teammate could deal with it. Uh, whereas uh, Moog was very much kind of a stick to your net guy and maybe go out and sort of field a shoot around, but just leave it for the defenseman as opposed to making any kind of play with it. I think that had some impact on Sather, but I, I just think he, he thought Fuhrer had that je ne sais quoi that's you know, going to come through for you when it matters most. And you know, Steve Smith might say, why was his leg sticking out from the net? <laughs> that would be a very good question. But uh, it, it in general terms, I mean, he was he was the man uh, for the first four of those cups. He played uh, the entire finals in three of them, and only Andy Moog was the hurt. first one, right? Moog finished the series. Fury yeah. started it with a with a shutout in Long Island, but then he got hurt. He got hit, and he got hurt. And Moog finished it up. So that was a true two goalie uh, uh, playoffs. Yeah, and even before Moog moved on, did you think eventually one of them would just become the full-time starter and play 60-plus games a year, or did you see this tandem going on for years to come? Well, tandem was so darn effective. We didn't really want to see anything change with it. Uh, I mean, Fuhr and Moog during the season, like as a fan, I was totally comfortable with either guy in net, like to always chances to win uh, every night. And many more nights than not, they had the better goalie. And uh, there was one or more seasons where the two of them both went to the All-Star game, and they were the two Campbell Conference goaltenders, <laughs> both on the same team. Uh, it doesn't happen often. But they really did split. It was uh, it was basically a one-on, one-off. Uh was, say, their standard. Every once in a while, it'd shake things up. But come playoff time, you could be confident that Grant would be the man in game one. And chances were very good he'd be the man in game 19 or 21 or however many it took to win it that year. And so uh, he eventually that chafed on Moog. And when 
in 87 playoffs, he didn't get much of a chance and his contract was expired. And that was the time that he was ready to uh, move on. Uh, and at that, he went to play for the Canadian Olympic team in Calgary in the 88 Olympics. And only after the Olympics were over was the trade made where he went to uh, to Boston and uh, Billy Ranford came over to Edmonton. So even that trade uh, worked out pretty well. Jeff Cortnell, not a bad player as a throw-in in that trade. For sure. Uh, and so uh, that worked out. In the end, Moog went on. He had a good career elsewhere, you know. Um, but uh, he was, if there was a one and one A in Edmonton, well, he was the one A, and Grant right. was the one. When the time came, and ultimately that led to. The, but for nearly eighty-three to eighty-seven as a tandem, phenomenal. They were both outstanding. For sure. And speaking of trades, I want to ask you about two noteworthy deals uh, from the 1986-87 season. Um, The Oilers weren't only known for having some of the most talented players in the world at this time, but some of the toughest in the league as well. And Dave Semenko would easily be at the top of that list. So after playing parts of 10 seasons with the Oilers in the NHL and WHA, Semenko was traded to the Hartford Whalers on December 12, 1986 for a third round pick in the 1988 NHL draft. Bruce Semenko is best remembered as Wayne Gretzky's bodyguard, but for fans outside of Edmonton who didn't get to watch Semenko play for a decade like you did, what did he mean to the Oilers during the glory years? Uh, he meant a, a lot. And he was, uh, uh, talk about glory years, uh, I was lucky enough that I uh, first took out season tickets in the fall of 77 when the Oilers were a very mediocre team in the World Hockey Association. And they had Glenn Sather just moving from player coach to full-time coach behind the bench. And he was the early forerunner of the champion teams. But in terms of players on the ice, the very first player who would ultimately win the cup here to arrive in Edmonton as an oiler was Dave Semenko uh, about a month into that 77-78 WHA season. And he won a lot of hearts in this town. Of course, hockey in the WHA in the late 70s was not for the faint of heart. Uh, it was uh, it was a pretty goony league, and there there was uh, uh, there was a few, uh, uh, few. This was around the time of Slapshot, and some of those characters <coughs> literally played in the league. You know, Louis Lavasser, he was the goalie in Slapshot. He played for the Oilers. Uh, Steve Carlson was one of the Hanson brothers. He played for the Oilers. Right. And around the league, there was something. Ogie, Ogie Oglethorpe, he's based on a minor league <laughs> legend player named Goldthorpe. And, you know, there was some pretty, pretty strong connections. But just the hockey in general, it was like fights are part of the entertainment package. It's like roller yeah. derby, you know, and it was, this is, uh, this is how the game is packaged. And, uh, you know, Semenko, uh, uh, he was he was a real powerhouse uh, fighter, for sure. He had a, what was then a new technique. Instead of throwing gloves down on the ice, he would throw them up. And the, when you realize Michael was in a fight, when you see the gloves flying in the air, because he'd bring up his hands, of course, his fists, when the gloves came up. So it was on the throw down, then bring the hands back up. He was already up and ready to go. He often had the early jump on the guy, and if he got the first one or two in, then the other guy was in serious trouble. He didn't lose many fights, did he? Uh, no, no, he lost a couple. 
Ben Wilson beat him one time, and, and uh, there was, you know, a few draws and that along the way, but it was more a matter of uh, deterrence. And, I mean, this is a lot of talk in the day, and there was some truth of it, and, and some of it is is um, ration, rationalizing it, but there's some, some truth in it that, you know, players really didn't want to uh, face the wrath of, Dave Semenko and legend had it he would you know when things were getting rowdy he'd just go out and skate go for a skate on the ice and find the uh, the main man from the other team and ask him if he wanted to go for a canoe ride <laughs> and often the game would settle down immediately without the canoe ride and it would just be you know addressed verbally and that would be that because he was a pretty imposing character at uh, uh, what 6-3 and 2 20 maybe i'm trying to remember exactly what he was but he was uh what he was in 86 87 was near the very near the end of the line right and he'd only played five games i think that season it was december at the time of the trade but what basically happened is marty mcsorley had won his job and marty mcsorley was a younger guy uh with more sort of fundamental game and a very sort of ferocious, aggressive guy, very big, strong guy. And uh, say they decided after the loss in 85-86 to Calgary, where both of them were playing, that that was maybe one too many. So Sammy was the coach's decision quite a few nights, and then they moved him on for basically to extend his career. I, I think they did him solid at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bruce, just because it's timely, the Oilers recently announced uh, their own Hall of Fame uh, as part of their 50-year celebration. And the seven players that we already talked about who all have their banners hanging at Rogers Place are automatically inducted into the Oilers Hall of Fame, but they will be naming two more later this month. I don't know if Semenko will be one of those original ones, but would you see him as a strong candidate to eventually be inducted into the Oilers Hall of Fame? To eventually be inducted? Absolutely, I do. Uh, And he may be on the early end of that list, uh, just uh, in part due to the misfortune that he's passed on a few years ago. And, you know, people want to uh, want to remember him and, and, you know, have reason to remember him positively. Uh, Certainly put up nothing in the way of statistics that says... um, this guy is an inner, well, even an outer circle Hall of Famer. Uh, but I think in terms of his role uh, within the team, both on the ice, but in the room, on the road trips, uh, you know, big, uh, big fellows, uh, timely sense of humor, had, apparently had the ability to crack up the room at times when things were getting tense. And sometimes that's what you really need. And I do know for statistics, he had five goals and five assists in the 1984 Stanley Cup playoffs when he played uh, quite a bit of time with Gretzky and Curry. And boy, did that solve a few problems when they all of a sudden had four lines deep uh, that they were able to go. Uh, and uh, nobody nobody in the end could handle them. But that was the hockey. Dave played the hockey of his life uh, during those playoffs. Uh, he... Uh, uh, it was sad to see him go, but it was time. So you know, yeah. ultimately, you know, we thought it's, you know, something's got to give. And when the news came out, well, it only makes sense. You know, it seemed like, say, there really was a father figure to this group because they were such a young team and he was a young coach. But um, he was also a guy who would move a player along when they were no longer able to help the team the way they once had. 
Yeah, and he made every summer he'd make like two or three changes. And just some of them would be tinkering, you know, around the around the edges. He'd bring in uh uh you know different um uh, uh players with you know skilled players on you know the the second line. He might have uh he went from having uh, uh Willie Lindstrom on the wing and when he lost him he brought in Mark Napier and when he lost him he brought in uh, you're probably going to ask me about Kent Nilsson that wound up in the uh, playing with Messi and Anderson. These guys were third wheel, and what they all had in common was skill. Yeah. And when they were put in a place where, you know, they weren't expected to, you know, sort of carry the scoring and create the goals, what they were just, you know, opportunists. And, you know, when the chance arises, you make that shot or that pass, and, and uh, good things are going to happen. And Sather was... Uh, he was a master at just working around the edges, you know, but adding wingers or uh, uh, bottom sixers uh, who could help. And without very often until the end of the dynasty, uh, really giving up on a, on a, on a player was central to the core, you know, a couple of exceptions with coffee and, and, and I'd argue Moog uh, where, you know, money eventually talked in both cases. Uh, but he would change, you know, he traded Ken Linsman for Mike Krushelniski, for example. And, you know, Ken Linsman had been a hero on the 84 Cup team. Well, all Mike Krushelniski did in 84, 85 was be part of the highest scoring line in NHL history <laughs> when he filled in on the first line with uh, Gretzky and Curry. Well, that's a dream job, and he made the most of it. And say, say there was a, he was a master at just making these small deals. You know, getting Kevin McClellan down to Pittsburgh, right? I mean, who's Kevin McClellan? Oh, that guy. Yeah. Getting Marty McSorley out of Pittsburgh. You know, I mean, he couldn't make a t- terrible non-playoff team, but he came into Edmonton, won a Stanley Cup as a right winger in 1987, and won another Stanley Cup as a right defenseman in 1988. Tell you what, there's a short list of players who've done that. Yeah. And uh, Bruce, you just mentioned Kent Nielsen a while ago, so that's a perfect time to transition to talking about him. Um, so on March 2nd, 1987, the Oilers actually picked up Kevin Nielsen for cash. Uh, so you can call it a trade or a sale, whatever you want. Nielsen closed out the season with 17 points in 17 games following the trade to Edmonton. And... Bruce, the Oilers already had the best line in the NHL with Gretzky, Curry, and Essa Tikkanen, and now they were adding Nielsen to an already supremely talented second line with Messi and Anderson, a line that would have been better than most teams' first lines uh, in the NHL. Uh, How well did the Magic Man fit with those two, and and do you consider this one of Glenn Sather's best in-season moves as GM of the Oilers? Uh, well, certainly one of, yeah, I'll buy, I'll buy one of. If I had to pick the best one, I'm not sure that would be it, but uh, uh, it was a nice sort of complimentary pickup, and they're sort of going, well, Kent Nilsson, maybe he's not the magic man that he was in, in Calgary, or, I mean, I remember him as a Winnipeg Jet, and 77-78 came into the uh, WHA as a rookie the same year I came in as a season ticket holder, and, of course, we saw a whole lot of the Winnipeg Jets here in Edmonton, <laughs> so I saw a whole lot of Kent Nilsson. Uh, playing for uh, uh, for Winnipeg, and then when they got into the NHL, they had that ridiculous reverse expansion where uh, teams like Winnipeg got just pilloried by NHL teams like Atlanta Flames that claimed Kent Nilsson because they drafted him, even though Winnipeg had signed him. 
And of course, the Atlanta Flames quickly became the Calgary Flames, and uh, and the Magic Man became kind of front front and center in the uh, Battles of Alberta. Usually came out second best because we had a lot more Magic Men than, than Calgary did. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll call that margin five to one as well. <laughs> but he was the one, and he had uh, 131 points, 49 goals, 131 points in uh, Calgary's first NHL season, and he was a a big time uh, player for them. And on this 87 team, he was one of four uh, 130 point players that the Oilers had uh, on that team that you know that had scored 130 plus points in a season, which is you know scoring champion range. Of course, Gretzky had several 200 point seasons, but uh, Curry, Coffee, over 130, and Messier would later get to 129. So. Yeah. yeah, but so they just the, the 87 team, I would say, without question, was the most skilled team Edmonton had. Mm-hmm. And Nielsen is also the the Flames all time single season scoring re- uh, record holder as well. Mm-hmm. 131 points. Eh? Yeah. yeah. Makes it even more satisfying that the player oh, who holds yeah, that record for the Flames. Yeah. <laughs> One is yeah, only Calgary traded him to Minnesota and then Lou Nanny. Uh, sent him on to Edmonton. Only did in Minnesota was score 106 points in 105 games. Better sell him to Edmonton. Yeah, no kidding. Let's make so the best we'll team in the out. NHL even better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lou Nanny and uh, Glenn Sather, they had an understanding. Let's put it that way. Okay. <laughs> Sather sent some good good prospect players to Minnesota, but come the deadline, he seemed to pick up the odd gem from right. that team. And, uh Kenta was definitely a gem. One team was building for the future and the other mm-hmm. was loading up for another run. Yes. All right. So the Oilers finished first in the NHL standings with a 50-24-6 record for 106 points in 1986-87, capturing back-to-back President's Trophies. It was also, yes, uh, and it was also their second straight 50-win season and third in franchise history. The Oilers led the league in goals for the fifth consecutive season as well with 372. And in the 1987 Smite Division semifinal, the Oilers faced the Los Angeles Kings, who finished 36 points behind them in the standings that season. However, the Oilers stumbled out of the gate in Game 1 against the Kings, didn't they, Bruce? Yeah, they sure did. And this was when the questions came. You know, they won the President's Trophy. Well, that's expected, right? There's... They're the best, but come the playoff time, after what happened last year, you know, against Calgary and losing those last two home games and to come out and lay an absolute egg in game one against Los Angeles was, uh, uh, it did not land well. And I distinctly remember uh, Tiger Williams scoring a goal for the Kings. He was king at that time. Uh, In the third period of that first game, kind of sealing the win, it was kind of a, a clinching goal for them. And he did that thing where he'd get on a ride his stick and, and oh yeah, the Tiger the, Williams, the, the rodeo thing, yeah, <laughs> Tiger Williams, the, the Tiger Williams, yeah, in front of the Oilers bench. And I remember thinking, Ooh. you know, they have to play the Oilers again tomorrow night. Maybe that wasn't probably the best idea. And tomorrow night came very quickly and uh, with <laughs> some uh, uh, gusto uh, when the Oilers blew out of the gate with a six-goal first period. And subsequently went on to storm Los Angeles thirteen to three. Yeah, 
the 13 goals still is a record for most goals in an NHL playoff game. Uh, Gretzky in that game, he started the game tied with Jean Beliveau with 176 points, most points ever in the Stanley Cup playoffs. He got one point in game one to tie Beliveau, but he was still just tied with him. Well, by the time that night was over, Wayne had a seven-point lead on Belleville because he scored <laughs> seven points in that 13-3 blowout. And uh, the whole Edmonton team just answered the bell and absolutely overwhelmed the Kings. And from there on, it was, you know, closer games. I think it was 6-5, 6-3 down the stretch of that series. But uh, the Oilers came out on top each time, and they basically just had too much offense that uh, L.A. could not handle them. But the, really, the series turned on... On uh, on game two, sort of, we were at that point where we're like, are they going to blow it in the playoffs again? Oh, here's the Oilers. We're in love. Look at this. Boom, boom. Oh. And they just yeah. kept it coming. And it was fantastic. That, uh, that second game was a was a treat to watch, even though the the opponent they were playing was weak enough that it wasn't a competitive game. You know, it was just a, it was just a, a shit kicking. Way to put it. Right. Uh, and uh, Bruce, after dropping game one to the Kings on home ice, the Oilers won the next four games in a row by a combined score of 30 to 15. And as you mentioned, that included the the famous record setting 13 to three victory in game two, where Wayne Gretzky passed John Beliveau. Um, one thing we've talked about on a previous episode is that he never took his foot off the gas in these situations where he was close to winning a record uh, or setting a record. He would uh, just continue to go for the jugular. Um, <laughs> other than the Oilers Stanley Cup victories, I, I mean, I, I don't know if this was the most exciting game you ever attended, but was it one of the most memorable because of the record that was set that night? Well, beating Sean Belleville's playoff scoring record, that's a pretty big deal. You know, I mean, that's the playoff equivalent to beating Gordy Howe's regular season scoring record. Right. And, uh, and Howe, I think, was second on that list at that time. But Belleville, you know, play, played in the Stanley Cup finals every year for the first eight years of his career, I think, because uh, Montreal was such a stacked team. But what most of those Habs teams didn't do until the very end of Bellow's career was play more than two rounds in the playoffs. So, of course, mm -hmm. by Gretzky's era, I mean, this is still 87. He's only been in the league for eight years, and he's already the all-time playoff scoring leader. Uh, there, In all honesty, there was lots of playoff games uh, that were more memorable than that one, but this this one is, you know, had for reasons... Uh, I, I do remember uh, the occasion, certainly the score and, and uh, some of the statistical outputs from it. Uh, but I can't tell you a whole lot about how the goals were scored. You know, it yeah. was just, this team was better than that team. You know, I was watching <laughs> the Canadian women's team take apart Belarus or something, right? right? It, was, it just was not really a contest. Oilers raised their game to basically their highest level kings couldn't match and from then it was just a matter of playing out the series and when they needed a goal they got one and it showed how dominant the team was that even on a night when gretzky scored seven points he only contributed to just over half the amount of goals mm -hmm. the team scored that night yeah yeah no they uh, the boys were firing on all cylinders and i think uh, i think tiger williams uh probably <laughs> bore some of the uh responsibility for that i don't that celebration sat too well uh, and the oilers had a reputation as being a cocky team themselves right mm -hmm. 
So for someone to try and show them up like that in their own building, first of all, I can imagine that Glenn Sather <laughs> uh, didn't mince words uh, after that game in his own right, but uh, the Oilers had enough pride themselves that they weren't going to take that lightly and they would respond accordingly the following night. Yeah. Yeah, no, they... Uh... They took matters into their own hands, and they they just scored early and often, and that was uh, a statement game. That was yeah. the statement game, really, of that of certainly of that series, and it it answered a lot of questions of you know the Oilers lost their edge, you know they lost the playoffs last year, and they got beat by the Kings in Game One, you know, and of course if they lost Game Two, they would have been in serious trouble. Well, they right. Never- Remotely close to losing game two, and uh, they were never remotely close to being in serious trouble after that in that series. Mm-hmm. And uh, after eliminating the Kings in five games, the Oilers took on the Winnipeg Jets in the 1987 Smythe Division final. This was the fourth playoff series between the two clubs since joining the NHL in 1979. And not only were the Oilers victorious in the previous three series, they had never even lost a game to the Jets at this point. And that trend continued in the 1987 playoffs as the Oilers swept the Jets four straight to advance to the conference final for the fourth time in five years and extend their playoff winning streak to eight games. Uh, And while the Jets were a talented squad in their own right, they simply couldn't handle the offensive firepower of the Oilers, could they? Uh, No, they couldn't. And they... And they couldn't score, you know, with the Oilers. I mean, nobody really could, right? But they, uh, um, I mean, the scores of this series, uh, uh, 3-2 in overtime in game one. I think that was Anderson again. And then 5-3, 5-2, 4-2. You know, and just Edmonton was the better team. And they, uh, uh, and Jets gave them a game. You know, the Jets, Jets play well. And they always seem to play well in game three in Winnipeg. And Edmonton would find a way to, uh, you know, kill him on the counterattack, typically. Right. And by game four, uh, Don Whitman, who was a tried-and-true Jets announcer, and he would sort of have a Jets viewpoint and things, and about halfway through the third period of game four, he'd be going, well, you know, these Edmonton Oilers are just too good for... He didn't say my jets, but I mean, basically, <laughs> came across. But he was, you know, and and he was a good announcer. But uh, it, it was kind of that moment when he admitted defeat was always a little bit of fun in those series. <laughs> <laughs> and Bruce, uh, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Wayne Gretzky was injured in the series, uh, mm-hmm. getting a concussion. Uh, do you recall what night it was? And it was game four. Okay. And it was uh, I was relatively early in the game, and there was some kind of a uh, some kind of a kerfuffle scrum. And Howardchuk pulled Howardchuk. It wasn't just any job. It was Dale Howardchuk pulled Gretzky down. And to my admittedly also biased eye, I mean, I had my team. I thought he kind of bounced his head off the ice, and. Wayne went off and not looking good at all. Yeah. And the Oilers finished that game without him, and they finished the Jets and won it 4-2. And afterwards, they got uh, an entire week off because they'd taken care of business. So uh, Wayne at least uh, had a little bit of time. He, yeah, he had, he had enough time that he was ready, they announced, ready to start uh, the next series against Detroit. And he did, in fact, start and finish and play in every game in that series, but he had zero goals and two assists in five-game series. Yeah. 
And you're convinced he wasn't at... Uh, he was nowhere close. He was nowhere close. These were bad games for, yeah. for Wayne Gretzky, and there was a reason they were bad games. He was trying to play through a concussion. Mm-hmm. And uh, the what we know today, he wouldn't have been... I'm not sure he would have been back, frankly, in those playoffs, but he certainly wouldn't have been back a week after that happened. And I'm, I'm equally convinced the Oilers would have beaten Detroit without Gretzky, which more or less they did. Because mm-hmm. he really was a shadow of himself. And fortunately, you know, they, they their next sort of uh, real tough series, uh, you know, we had a couple of more couple more weeks. They won against Detroit. They had a few more days off. And then by the time they played Philly, he was a little, he wasn't like on top of his game, though, even then. But he still was a dominant player in the Stanley right. final. Well, let's talk about that series uh, between the Oilers and Red Wings now. So after sweeping the Jets out of the playoffs, the Oilers faced the Detroit Red Wings in the 1987 Campbell Conference Final. This was the first ever playoff meeting between the Oilers and Red Wings. And just like in their first round series against the Kings, the Oilers came out flat in game one, dropping a 3-1 decision to the Red Wings on home ice. Bruce, even though the Oilers were clearly the superior team, do you think that loss slapped them to attention that they couldn't take anyone lightly once you make it this far in the playoffs? Yeah, again, a little bit. Uh, it was a there were desultory games. Uh, Detroit was uh, they finally come. They've been the dead things for a lot of years before then, and this was right. just the beginning, first signs of life in Detroit. Oilers would play them in the conference final again the next year, uh, but uh, they were. They were just coming around. They they were a defensively oriented game. And I mean, scores in this series: four, three one, Detroit one, Edmonton one, four one, two one, three two. I mean, these are not sort of your standard Oilers games. Like I was saying, Gretzky didn't get a lot done, and they were just sort of getting their way through it. I mean, game three, I think it was Marty McSorley. There it is. I'm just calling up on hockey uh, reference dot com. This game summary. I just remembered McSorley scoring in the 60th minute. It was a 1-1 tie, and the series was tied 1-1. Here's Marty McSorley, the Glen say their unheralded pickup from Pittsburgh, scoring uh, a goal at 19:24, the third period. McSorley from McTavish and Hunter. You know that's not exactly your 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 big boppers there, but somehow they got <laughs> one when the Oilers really needed it to win that game. And once they got the, that basically got them home ice it back. And that was a huge sigh of relief to win that game three. Because that was a tense game. It really was. And Gretzky was clearly struggling. And then uh, uh, they again won game uh, game four in Detroit. Uh, but again, it was just a one-goal, uh, low-scoring, hard-fought game. But uh, uh, this was sort of the low point of the playoffs for the Oilers. And like I say, that Gretzky concussion was a huge part of that if he was you know firing on his usual eight cylinders uh that they would have made shorter work of those games it still might have gone five but uh, i don't think the games themselves would have been quite as tense right um so as you said after a tough start against the red wings the oilers responded with four straight victories including a pair of tight one goal games on the road to advance to the stanley cup final for the fourth time in five years bruce even though the job was far from over at this point, did you take any satisfaction in seeing the Oilers win their fourth Clarence Campbell Bowl, or was this just another step in the road to the Oilers reaching their ultimate goal? Uh, really, ju- just another step. The uh, the Campbell Conference uh, like conference finals 
was always it was tougher to get out of the Smythe division than it was to get out of the Camel Conference most years. Uh, they didn't they sweep had, a couple opponents in the they, the conference final. Uh, yes, they did. They swept. Uh, uh, they swept Chicago in '83. They swept in Minnesota. Minnesota in '84, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, they generally made fairly short work of the of their uh, uh, conference rival. And there was never really any doubt as to which was the better team. It's just a matter of when were they going to uh, assert themselves and prove it. And this Detroit series was. Uh, uh, it was concerning, and going into the finals, I mean, there was concern. Is Wayne going to be all right? That was sort of number one. And also, you know, these Philadelphia Flyers, this is a pretty darn good hockey team. Right. And by this time, I mean, it wasn't just wasn't just this this year. It was uh, uh, three years running, 84, <laughs> 85. Philly was first overall. Edmonton came second overall. One two in the league in goal differential. Eighty five, eighty six. Edmonton first overall. Philly second overall. One two in the league in goal differential. Eighty six, eighty seven. This year we're talking about Edmonton number one, Philly number two. One two in the league in goal differential. You know, I mean, these were the two best teams in the league. One first and second in the standings too. In the standings, yeah, all three years. One two in the standings and goal differential. Same two teams, three years in a row, and they met in the yeah. finals in two of the years. These were the two best teams in hockey, but one of them was better than the other, and the Oilers proved that in both times that they actually met in the finals. Right. And after going 12-2 and two through the first three rounds of the postseason, the Oilers met those Philadelphia Flyers in the 1987 Stanley Cup final. It was also a rematch of the 1985 final, which the Oilers won in five games. Uh, but Bruce, going into that, 87 series did you think the flyers would present a greater challenge for the oilers than the team they beat two years earlier yes yeah they, they were clearly a more mature in the 85 team that was mike keenan's rookie season and uh he really fired up that team and they had a, some young guy rick Tockett was a i believe a rookie on that 84 85 flyers team and and Kelly Limburg and goal. Yeah, yeah, and they and they were starting to uh, uh, starting to make noise. Well, by '87, all those guys were a couple years older, and, and and many of them were a couple years better. And there were some truly great players on that team. I mean, the the, the top defense pair of of uh, Mark Howe and Brad McCrimmon. Uh, that was a sensational uh, pairing. Uh, that were you know huge plus pairing every year. And uh, they had uh, uh, this, I guess, second pairing was a defensive pairing of Brad Marsh and, and Shell Samuelson. The skating tripod was his uh, less than flattering nickname because he was a big, huge guy, a very lumbering skater, and it seemed like he leaned on his stick while he was skating. But you couldn't go around either of these guys, right? They both each covered half the ice. <laughs> and, and they were, they were you know, you try and put a pass through and while between uh, Samuelson and uh, Marsh, it seemed like they had like uh, seven skates and five sticks, uh, you know, they they were just in the way, constantly in the lane. And so, you know, they had this sort of real solid, uh, uh, Doug Crossman on that defense group as well. So they had this really solid defensive group. Uh, Pelle Lindbergh, of course, by then had passed away in an unfortunate car accident. 
Uh, and they did have a rookie in his spot, Ron Hextall, who had a, a phenomenal, probably the best season of his career. Isn't it? Won the Vesna Trophy, right? And he, uh, well, he, and he won. And then he won the Conn Smythe Trophy with, mm-hmm. a, with a, a towering performance in the playoffs. And this was a team; they played twenty six games in those playoffs. Like you know, there wasn't like four and five game series the way Edmonton had them. It was six and seven all the way for those. Yeah, guys. they played seven think, more games that year than the Oilers did in the playoffs. I think it's still a record. I think Dallas Stars tied it a couple of years ago when they when they played here in the bubble playoffs against uh, Tampa and lost. That they played twenty six games and eventually ran out of steam in the end. And that's that's uh, what that that Philly team. And then they had uh, you know they had a first line of Brian Prop with Pelly Eklund. And Rick Tockett. And those guys were dynamite. Like they had it all. Like Eklund was such a such a skilled puck handler and, and rusher and distributor. And Tockett was this big, mean, hard-nosed power forward with the scoring touch. And and prop was a sniper and a and a bit of a nasty piece of work in his own his mm-hmm. own uh, uh, way that uh, they uh they held their own and then some, even against the Oilers. Those guys were those guys were real tough. Definitely. All right. So in game one of the nineteen eighty seven final at Northlands Coliseum, Wayne Gretzky gave the Oilers an early one nothing lead before Brian Prop tied the game one all in the second period. However, the game wouldn't stay tied for long as Edmonton completely took it over in the third period, didn't they, Bruce? They sure did, and there's this was their, their, well, you might call them secondary scores, but secondary only to Gretzky. Uh, Anderson put him on the lead on a goal from Messier. Uh, Coffey extended the lead on a goal from Gretzky. And then Curry made it 4-1 on a goal from Messier and Coffey. <laughs> <laughs> Have fun with that, Philly, you know. Uh, you know, so it was a tight game, and then the, the Oilers, you know, just their scoring depth. You know, Gretzky, Anderson, Coffey, Curry. Well, those guys all scored, and Edmonton won four two. And Jerry made, you know, saves when he needed to. And uh, Prop and Talk had scored for Calgary. I'm just again looking at the summary right now, but it was uh, it was uh, um, Edmonton. And I think I think maybe Philly came into that with one game left, less rest. I think they had a uh, a longer series on the other side. And anyway, it was um, they they seemed a little bit overmatched. And after game one, I was briefly confident that it might be a short series. Mm-hmm. Not what ended up happening though. And. Uh... <laughs> With an assist on Paul Coffey's game-winning goal in Game 1, Gretzky also recorded his 200th career playoff point, becoming the first player in NHL history to ever reach the milestone. And in Game 2, Gretzky scored a power play goal just 45 seconds into the opening frame to put the Oilers in front, but the Flyers responded with a pair of goals later in the period to take a 2-1 lead after 20 minutes. And following a scoreless second period, the Oilers were still trailing by one in the third, which set the stage for an exciting and dramatic finish to the game, Bruce. Yeah, it sure did. Uh, my recollection is the three goals were all scored in the second. Yeah, they were. Gretzky scored in the, I think it was even a five-on-three in the second. The or my mistake, I apologize. 40, 45 yeah. seconds into the second period, I should yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Philly took two penalties right in a row right at the end of the first. 
and Edmonton had a two-man advantage, and they scored. And this was, I was at this game too, of course, all the home games, and uh, uh, this, uh, I think I would single this out as the best game I ever saw in NHL. Really? Yeah, just a fantastic game. Both teams playing, uh, giving it all that they uh, all that they had, and it was uh, uh, back and forth, great goaltending at both ends. I believe the shots were 34-34. It was just a, uh, let me see, 34-34, look at that, memory. So let me go about some things. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, Andrew, uh, third period, and Philly was clinging to this 2-1 lead, and, and cling was something they did really well. I mean, that team won a lot of games by winning 2-1 style games and by just grinding it out and, and just snuffing the other team's chances and ultimately the clock. So it was getting pretty tense there, sort of eight minutes left in the third period when the Oilers finally broke through uh, with the uh, great Glenn Anderson on a solo effort, uh, uh, driving through. And uh, this was the one he he came over the blue line. He, had, he was involved in three huge goals in the series, and all of them involved him coming over the blue line and uh, winding up for a slap shot. In this case, he faked the shot, went right around the defenseman, I think it was Crossman, and went and sizzled one past uh, Hextall to tie it 2-2 in places he erupted, as you might expect. And it stayed tied and stayed tied right into uh, right into overtime and some pretty tense plays at both ends of the ice in overtime, but ultimately the great Yari Curry uh, buried one. Our end of the ice, uh, we, we were at the defensive end for the first and third period of basically all the games. But the, that meant the odd overtime, the first mm-hmm. overtime period would be coming at us. And sometimes we'd see the winner right, right in our near net. And this was one such case where uh, uh, Gretzky held the puck along the side while fed it back to Coffee in the high slot. And Coffee looked to shoot and then fed it off to Curry. It was open at the side with, uh, you know, the, the whole net, you know, on an angle, but the whole net to hit and hit it he did. And ended that brilliant game with... Uh, uh, you know, a really great goal by, by you know, three three of the greatest players in the game. I mean, Gary Curry from Paul Coffey and Wayne Gretzky, you know, that's how you do it. Yeah. And you know, Bruce, I can see why this might be your favorite game that you ever attended, because I remember a while back you tweeted a screen grab from the broadcast of you and your wife in the stands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right after Curry's overtime winner. And you were also the only fan in your section wearing an Oilers jersey. So that must have been cool to catch yourself on TV after such an important goal, an overtime goal in the Stanley Cup final. And clearly you were ahead of your time as far as fans wearing jerseys at games. <laughs> Nowadays, everybody except me wears a jersey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to the games. They're just there. They're everywhere. But uh uh, back in the, those days, they were that, that trend was really just getting underway. And for whatever reason, in that one screen grab, there was hardly anyone that was uh, that was yeah. doing that. And you know, so, the NHL is always looking for new ways to increase revenue and, and bring in more money. Are you surprised that the idea of selling jerseys to fans didn't become more of a phenomenon early on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people had. I mean. Young boys got jerseys out of their Eaton's catalog, right? Right. And according to the legendary uh, book, The Hockey Sweater, uh, and that happened. But fans wearing them to games, that wasn't trendy for a long time. 
Well, I mean, if you go look at any game, yeah, I mean, go on YouTube and watch one of the games from the 1960s, and you won't find a single person. I was going to say, you won't find a person (laughs) in the crowd not wearing a suit. It also seemed like every fan was over 40 years old in the crowd at that time, too. Yeah, mostly men, mostly white. And not kids. Mostly wearing suits, yeah. Mostly, yeah, like you say, sort of executive. And, and I mean, if you're talking about the 60s, yeah. uh, very reserved uh, for uh, um, large stretches. I mean, obviously, when you when uh, things get, get intense, people's blood gets up. But uh, uh, even in the Coliseum, you know, people used to call it the mausoleum. They used to say, you know, it's like a library in there. The fans are just sort of... Yeah, it had a reputation as a quiet building. I yeah. think he... Even Wayne Gretzky has said that, but it got loud in the playoffs, right? Sure did. When it mattered yeah. most, uh, the, the noise level certainly came up. And uh, I mean, it's not like fans didn't appreciate what was going on because we most certainly did. But it, it was a matter of picking your spots for when you know, you know, he just scored to make it eight to two against uh, uh, against Colorado Rockies in Wednesday night in February. You know, why go crazy, right? <laughs> Especially when you knew that they were going to score a lot more that night. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That might be one of seven goals you were going to see before the night was over. Um, So after the Oilers took a 2-0 series advantage on home ice, the series shifted back to Philadelphia for Game 3. And the Spectrum had a reputation for being a tough building to play in for opposing teams. Despite this, the Oilers jumped out to a 3-0 lead in the second period. However, the wheels fell off for the Oilers in the final 30 minutes of the game, didn't they, Bruce? Yeah, they sure did. I mean, at this point, it, it actually was, it seemed too, too, uh, uh, too straightforward. And they came out in the first, Messier scored, a shorty, Coffey scored, Anderson scored. And at this point in the series, there's been uh, 10 goals scored by the Oilers, and all 10 of them have been scored by one of the big five. Right, every single goal in the series has been scored by one of Gretzky, Curry, Messier, Anderson, or Coffee for the Oilers. And once it got to three nothing, it seemed like, you know, this maybe it's eighty five again. We're you know we're in control here, and then Philly started to chip away, and basically they spent the whole rest of the series after this one chipping away. They got a couple in the second, a couple more early in the third, had an empty net early, and all of a sudden. What it seemed, you know, three nothing looked sure looked like a nice lead, and all of a sudden you're on the short end of a five three loss, and you know, and there's now a lot, whole lot of uh, noise and emotion in the Philadelphia building, and now we've got a series. Definitely, and uh, moving on to Game Four, Wayne Gretzky set up Yari Curry and Kevin Lowe for a pair of first period tallies to make it two nothing Oilers. And after those two assists, or sorry, I should say those two assists gave Gretzky a playoff leading 30 points. It was the fourth time he had reached the 30-point mark in the playoffs. And as of 1987, no one else had done it more than once. Um, Bruce, after blowing a three-goal lead in Game 3, the Oilers weren't about to let another one slip away as they earned a 4-1 victory and a commanding 3-1 series lead. But... What fans might remember most about that game was Ron Hextall's vicious two-handed slash to the back of Kent Nielsen's legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you expect that that bad blood would carry over to Game 5? Yeah, 
I did. Uh, I mean, Hextall was front and center in this series, really right from the get-go. And in the playoffs, like he came into this series as uh, as the uh, uh, as the most talkable player on the Flyers, and as a uh, uh, more or less the considered the MVP of the Eastern Conference <clears throat> coming into the coming into the finals. Uh, but the Oilers got to him on this night, as you say. Uh, Curry scored from Gretzky. Lowe scored a shorthanded goal from Gretzky. Uh, Philly cut the lead. Then Randy Gregg scored a power play goal from Gretzky. <laughs> and there was actually no other assists in this game. The Oilers and the team scored three assists in this game, and Gretzky had them all. Point number <clears throat> nine, 199, 200, and 201 of his playoff go. career that night. And then Kuchelniski put it away with an unassisted marker in the third. So, uh, But this was uh, certainly the most complete game Edmonton played in Spectrum in that series. Uh, and they they basically got the lead the lead and took charge. This was a game that was not as exciting as some of the other games. So as a fan, I loved it. I just thought yeah. they played really really well and dominated the game and you know earned the lead and then just shut her down and and uh, took it all the way to the buzzer. And after the way they'd blown the previous game, it was very reassuring. And with the series coming home to Edmonton, there was every reason to be confident. That, right. uh, that uh, they would close it out in Game 5, as they had done uh, in both their two previous Cups. Definitely. And after earning a split on the road, the Oilers returned home to North Clans Coliseum for Game 5 with a chance to win the Stanley Cup in front of their own fans. And Bruce, the Oilers got off to another quick start. However, the Flyers battled back to deny them their uh, Stanley Cup celebration on that night. Yeah, this was the one. I mean, they always scored or in the power play early. Curry again. Uh, they stretched to two nothing. Philly scored in the last minute of the first, but the Oilers scored early in the second to stretch it to three one. And you're thinking, yeah, here we go. They're just going to keep scoring and it's going to mount. And uh, you know, typically in these situations, the Oilers would not only win this game, but they'd win it by three or four or five goals. And Philly just kept chipping away and chipping away and and. Uh, uh, scored twice in the second and then one early in the third. Talk it again. His 11th of the playoffs. Like he was a major force, that guy. And uh, Brian Prop had four primary assists for Philly. And that line with Eklund and them, they, they, uh, they, uh, they took over that game. And Edmonton, the sort of celebratory atmosphere in Edmonton kind of didn't prepare us like it seemed like especially once it got to three to one that yeah we're we're gonna roll and philly just didn't knuckle under which prior teams in that situation we seen you know once the orders got a leg up on them they were done and these flyers just refused to to bend over yeah i mean just it seemed like every game they they would battle back. And also, just to mention a correction from the previous game, it was point number 29, 30, and 31 mm. of that year's playoffs in yeah. Game 5. Um, and Bruce, with Game 6 back in Philadelphia, the Oilers took a 2-0 lead for the third straight contest. Amazingly, though, the Flyers staged yet another comeback to even the series at 3 and force a Game 7 in Edmonton. After watching the Flyers rally to beat the Oilers three times in that series, how nervous were you heading into Game 7, or did you think that the Oilers' playoff experience would give them the edge in a do-or-die game? Oh, both of those things. Um, I mean, having 
I mean, they had a they had a, a two goal lead uh, in all three games they lost. Had a three three nothing lead, two two nothing leads. They also had a two nothing lead in the series that narrowed to two one, made it three one, and that that lead went away. And it was you know the same kind of scoring in the series that happened within the individual games. You know, in fact, in Game Five, we'd seen exactly that, where Philly had come from down three-one to win four-three, and thinking if that's the template, yeah, this is uh, this is not going to be fun. And Edmonton had scored first in every game, and and uh, my thought was, you know, it might, might not be the worst thing if Philly scores first, even though, you know, he, but you might have got your wish. Change, change the, the, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, find an Edmonton Sun from that day, May thirty-first, nineteen eighty-seven, and you'll find a quote from some fan named Bruce McCurdy about <laughs> that first goal. That uh, and that's kind of how it played out. It was so. Unusual, but I mean that game six, uh, Edmonton led two one, deep into the third period. Seven minutes left, and then Philly went wham wham, and all of a sudden it was three two and coming back, and uh, and just a zillion penalties in that game. The orders, I think the orders got the short straw from the officials in game six, to be honest. Uh, but they uh, uh, they hadn't, you know, they hadn't. Killed the monster, and they hadn't played well enough to to seal the deal. So ultimately, they would have to bring out their very, very best in the series finale if they wanted yep. to to uh, to kill the snake. Uh, and Bruce, in Game Seven, the Flyers opened the scoring for the first time in the series when Murray Craven scored on the power play less than two minutes into the first period. But after falling behind early, Edmonton mounted a comeback of their own thanks to goals from Mark Messier, Yari Curry, and Glenn Anderson yeah, as the nice. o- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as the Oilers beat the Flyers 3-1 and captured their third Stanley Cup championship in four years. Bruce, while Edmonton's speed and finesse was on full display in Game 7, they didn't score seven or eight goals. Instead, they dominated the Flyers in a different way than fans were maybe used to seeing from the 80s Oilers. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, they did. I mean, they could have scored seven or eight goals. They, the Oilers hit the post, I think, four or five times in this game. Hextall was unbelievable, and he also had the horseshoes going on big time. Pucks mm-hmm. behind him that dinged the iron, stayed out somehow. Uh, the Oilers were just having so much trouble finishing plays. But they started out, you know, the first whistle of the game was a penalty to Messier. second whistle of the game was a penalty to Coffey. All of a sudden, here you are, minute into the game seven of the Stanley Cup Finals, and you're three on five. And then Philly scored on the third play of the game. Like, that's how it started. And they were still on the power play after that. And you're going, oh, my goodness. This really could not be good. And for the and, first time in the series, and, the Oilers were trailing. Yeah. for Yeah. For, in, in any part other than the third period, yeah. And... So suddenly the challenge changed, but the orders rose to that challenge, and they killed the rest of that penalty, and they scored a brilliant uh, tying goal on a three-way passing play that Mark Messier started behind his own net and finished at the edge of the Philadelphia crease. Uh, Messier made a lead pass to uh, Nilsson at center ice, and... uh, uh, Nilsson, sorry, he made a lead pass to Anderson at center ice. Anderson came over the blue line uh, right to left like he did uh, on the previous goal I mentioned, wound up for the slap shot, 
But again, it was a fake shot. But this time, rather than geek the defenseman, he slipped the pass through to Kent Nelson, who made the goal mouth pass across to Messier, who joined the rush by this time and tapped home a backhander, tied it at one-to-one. Uh, and that was huge. Uh, a few minutes after that, there was a Philly chance that squeaked through Grant Fuhrer and was trickling towards the goal line with uh, one or two flyers also trying to follow it in and power it in. And who but Marty McSorley, right winger, not defenseman at this point, materializes to clear the puck off with the goal line with a, with the hero save. And so there, there was there was heroes that came from different parts of the team, even as the main men did most of the goal scoring. Uh, the other role players did their thing, and this was a case of that. So that yeah. that kept it at one to one, and through a combination of uh, of uh, voodoo and sorcery, uh, Hextall kept it one to one until five minutes to go in the second period when uh, uh, Essa and shook a puck loose in the corner, right down below where we sat in that corner, and uh, went to Gretzky, and he. Uh, he just slipped a short, sort of unassuming pass to Curry at the top of the circle, and he shrugged his shoulder, and boom, the net rippled, and it was two to one for Edmonton, just kind of out of nowhere. After all the pressure they had, this goal sort of just was a quick turnover pass shot in. Whoa. And the building must have erupted Curry after ahead. that one. And the building, yes, the building certainly did erupt after that one. And this was uh, in the finals, this is the seventh game, both Curry and Gretzky had at least one point in all seven games in this finals, which mm-hmm. was, uh, considering it was a low-scoring se- series, the Oilers as a team only got 22 goals in seven games, which that's not many for that team. Uh, Philly was a defensive force and hard to beat. Uh, but that turned out to be the game winner. But, of course, the team, having blown so many leads... Uh, in the series by this time, the third period was a white knuckle ride, almost to the very bitter end. Every time Philly crossed the blue line coming towards us, I'd sit back in my seat and you could feel the whole road, everybody just sort of sitting, taking that defensive posture, you know, sort of sitting back. But the Oilers themselves, they didn't sit back at all. And they played in the third period of this game with a 2-1 lead against the team that kept coming back and kept coming back. I would say the Oilers played as close to a perfect period of hockey as they'd ever played uh, to then and maybe to this day. They they held the Flyers to two shots in that third period. Wow. And the Oilers peppered uh, Hextall with 12 shots of their own. They hit two couple more posts at least. you got to watch the video to see when the posts were, but I promise you there's like at least four posts for Edmonton in this game. Messier thought he had scored on yeah, one. Messier hit the crossbar. He thought it was in. He argued with the ref while the play came the other way. You know, there was there was just so many moments. And then finally the moment that almost everyone remembers is uh, two and a half minutes left in the third period and uh, uh, Charlie Huddy makes a short pass to neutral zone to uh, Glenn Anderson. Uh, again, coming right to left, he comes up over the blue and he winds up for another slap shot. It's going to be another fake. No, it's in the net. He blasted the slap shot right through Hextall. And the whole play, this was the loudest I think I ever heard. Uh, Northlands in response to a specific goal. I mean, maybe the fans were louder when we won the first cup, you know, at the sort of denouement. But in terms of the the, the, the noise level just suddenly exploding, I, I thought the roof was going to come off. It really was. 
And only then, three to one, still two minutes left, you know, and the nervous Nelly fans like me were sort of going, you know, don't make any mistakes. No, you don't want to give them that one back right away. And that, but no problem. And they just, they, Philly was finally beaten. Hextall was finally beaten. And uh, the Oilers were able to uh, to play it out to the game. You know, one thing about game seven, uh, Eric, is that this was the first game in the series where the Oilers dressed seven defensemen. This was an early, early, early Jay Woodcroft uh, <laughs> yeah. seven, where Steve Smith, uh, he'd been kind of a bit player, the sixth, seventh guy, and he spent some games in the press box. And when he was in the press box, Edmonton seemed to invariably lose. And I think that year they were 14 and one in games that Smith played and two and four in games that he didn't. Well, of course, he didn't, there was injury, so he was in and out. But by game seven, say there was going, you know, even though all of our other six guys are ready, I want Steve as well. Let's get him out there. So they ran with uh, uh, with seven defensemen in that game, just reading the list here, Paul Coffey, Randy Gregg, Charlie Huddy. Uh, this was Martin Sorter, who's still playing forward at this time. We can't count him. Kevin Lowe, Craig Muni, Ray Lane, and Steve Smith. Steve Smith was plus two mm-hmm. in game seven of the Stanley Cup Finals. Steve Smith, the GOAT of uh, previous year's playoff and one of the great GOAT moments in uh, sports history, to be frank. Right. You know, I mean, baseball fans will talk about the Merkel boner and the Snodgrass muff and the bucket muff and, you know, stuff like that. But uh, that was, that was, a, that was a, a real GOAT moment. I'm not talking greatest of all time. Yeah. GOAT. The uh, the old term for it. <laughs> Steve was uh, was the uh, in the lineup and doing what he did, you know, playing playing big, playing mean and tough against a big, tough, mean opponent, and uh, holding holding his ground and giving him nothing. And uh, we don't have time on ice in this game. It'd be kind of interesting to see that mm-hmm. that we didn't quite have that then. Uh, but he was, you know, part of the, certainly part of the rotation and. and Held the fort, and then of course the famous moment came in the in the uh, cup celebration when uh, uh, John Ziegler handed the cup to Captain Wayne Gretzky, and he immediately passed it over to Steve Smith, and that was uh, just such a fitting moment. To smile on Smith's face as he raised that cup it was just warm your heart. Yeah. I mean, after everything he had been through the year before on his birthday, uh, in the biggest game of the season that ultimately ended up with that. Yeah. And that ended the Oilers dream of winning a third straight Stanley Cup. I mean, for him to have this moment a year later and be handed the cup first by Wayne Gretzky, I think that it, it spoke to Gretzky's leadership to recognize that Smith was the right player to hand it to first. And also, um, although Smith probably carried that burden somewhat for the rest of his career and maybe to this day, uh, it it might have exercised some demons at least. Very much so. I mean, that, that you could see the, you could see the exorcism taking place when he was raising that cup and I mean, Wayne singled him out and, and rightfully so. I mean, Nowadays, they kind of have a pecking order of experienced players and so on that they go through. But yeah. this was a case where the right guy that needed to lift that thing got it right away. Absolutely. And that was in the crowd, roar from the crowd at that moment was uh, a sound for uh, sore ears, I guess, would be the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
that's why you know the sight for sore eyes but only that sound anyway it was yeah. uh was uh, a joyous uh moment and uh he was uh officially welcomed back into the uh, into the pantheon of good guys <gasps> steve wound up winning uh, he wound up winning three cups here yeah and he was a big time player on those teams and Bruce, looking at the Oilers' statistics from the 1987 playoffs, Wayne Gretzky led the league in playoff scoring with 34 points, including 11 points in the final. His 29 assists were also more than anyone else had total points in the playoffs that year. Yari Curry led the league in playoff goals with 15. Mark Messier and Glenn Anderson each finished top five in playoff scoring as well with 28 and 27 points respectively. And in goal, Grant Fuhr posted a stellar 14-5 and record. Uh, Bruce, in an interview with NHL.com in 2017, Gretzky called the 1986-87 Oilers the most talented team from their dynasty. As someone who was a fan through the glory years and watched all of those cups, do you agree that the 1987 edition was the most skilled Oilers team in franchise history? Uh, yeah, I think I do. Uh, <clears throat> I Some of the talent was... Uh, the talent was maturing. Uh, and the the boys that were you know 23 when uh, when they won the first cup in 84 as all four of the superstar forwards were and coffee fear were younger than that um you know they were all 26 by then and they just had i think a little more complete games and maybe they weren't even necessarily better scorers but they you know they had had more depth to their games and that team was absolutely lethal at converting uh, at converting chances. Uh, I meant to talk about this earlier, just about the regular season, but just just a couple of statistics about that team that won the President's Trophy with 106 uh, points. Uh, there was a, that was a 21-team NHL, mm-hmm. and the Oilers finished tied for 16th with New Jersey Devils. Mickey Mouse team. Shot, <laughs> shots per game. Like you think offensive team, they're going to have a lot of shots, right? They're always going to be peppering pucks at the net. They're going to, you know, they're going to mount those shots up. The orders were 16th out of 21, tied for 16th uh, in, in shots uh, or shots per game, which is how they presented on the NHL page. Well, guess where they were for goals? I don't have to one by that. some margin. Number one. Uh, Oilers, 372 goals, 4.65 per game. Second in the league uh, was, for goals, was LA Kings and Calgary Flames, each 318, so just under four per game. The Oilers had 54 more goals than any other NHL team, despite the fact they were in the bottom third in the league in shots on goal. Right. But their shooting percentage was just through the roof. The Oilers shooting percentage that year was 15.8%. The team shooting mm-hmm. percentage, 15.8% was uh, as part of a streak of seven straight years, ending with the Gretzky departure, where the team shot over 15% in every one of those years. Uh, this was the first year in six where they didn't score 400 goals. The defense was starting to come on. But their their ability to convert the fifteen point eight percent shooting percentage second in the league was twelve point nine Philly, almost three uh, percent lower than the Oilers. 
21st and last in the league was 11.2. I mean, the team that was second was much closer to 21st than they were to first. I mean, the Oilers were just they, just in a completely different league in terms of how they turned opportunities with the puck, uh, not in necessarily into shots, but when they did shoot into goals. And sometimes, you know, they make that extra pass, and the extra pass didn't work, well, there would be no shot. But when the extra pass did, did work, there would be no save. Yeah. I mean, that was a team that you didn't want to trade chances with, but it, it seemed to happen more often than not. And the Oilers had so many dangerous attackers that even though they didn't get as many scoring chances as their opponent, they made the ones that they got count. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they got Oilers in the regular season. All five of their cup years, they, they were outshot. They they had fewer shots than their opponents. Yeah. And, you know, you, you think nowadays in terms of uh, shot analytics and so on, um, that uh, teams with high shot shares should have high goals shares. And mm-hmm. certainly that's true now. And obviously some things have changed from the time of dynasties and dinosaurs. You know, I mean, it's a whole different time. In the parody era, shot shares probably do mean... Uh, have a have a greater meaning, um, but one of the completely different I, style of hockey now I've too, been though, right? Always skeptical, a little bit of uh, of shot share analytics is that I saw these Oilers and we didn't have the individual Corsi and so on, not, nothing like that. And for the team, we didn't have Corsi or Fenwick or uh, scoring shot. All we had was shots and goals. What uh, the Oilers were so mediocre in the one and so completely, utterly dominant, you know, winning the, uh, the, the league goal scoring title for team, you know, by sometimes hundred goals in a year, in this case, 54 goals in the season. And they were, uh, uh, it was just a different way of doing it and evidence that, you know, there's more than one way to win than just simply dominating and doing, you know, the Scotty Bowman Detroit era where we'll outshoot you 30 to 20 and we'll beat you three to two. You know, it's uh, the Oilers were, you know, we'll, we'll trade chances with you. We'll even give you the first chance. We're happy. To, we're confident Grant will make the save. And we're also confident we'll come down on the counter and kill you. Yeah. Without a doubt. All right, we're going to discuss the 1987 Canada Cup now. So just three months after the Oilers celebrated their Stanley Cup victory, Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Glenn Anderson, Paul Coffey, and Grant Fuhr were all selected to play for Team Canada in the 1987 Canada Cup. Canada finished first in the round-robin standings with a 3-0-2 record and defeated Czechoslovakia 5-3 in the semifinal to advance to the best-of-three final against the Soviet Union. And with 12 future Hall of Famers on Team Canada, including all five superstars from the Oilers, this was almost certainly the most star-studded Canadian squad to ever play on the international stage. However, the Soviets were every bit Canada's equal in this tournament. Bruce, did it seem like these two nations were destined to meet in the final before the tournament even started? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the Russians, uh, Soviets, they still were at that time. Uh, they were a dominant team. They had the uh, famous green unit uh, with uh, uh, the KLM line, Krutov, Larinov, Makarov, and then the defensemen, Fetisov and, and Kasatonov. Uh, 
who eventually wound up hating each other and not ever speaking to one another. Uh, but at this time, the, the that unit, and they played them as a unit, a five-man unit, and they were gloriously good. And, in fact, that same team went on to, uh, uh, to win the Olympic gold medal in Calgary uh, a few months later in the 88 Olympics. I was fortunate enough to actually see them play in one of those games oh, wow. at, at the corral. And uh, uh, that was... Uh, uh, um, a dominant team that uh, uh, they they weren't quite yet there. They, these guys were just still coming up through the junior team. Uh, Pavel Bure, Alexander McGillney, Sergei Fedorov. I mean, they were turning out some mighty fine hockey players on an ongoing basis. And they still played a foreign game, um, but it wasn't quite so foreign as what we'd seen in the Summit Series. I and mean, you'll be hearing lots about the Summit Series this month. It's the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. of 1972. Uh, and at that time, it was like the two teams spoke two different languages on the ice. And by 87, there was enough of a hybrid, even though Russians hadn't played in the NHL, but they played against each other enough times uh, that at least they could sort of speak each other's language. Uh, and there was some overlap, but they're still very, very different. I, I uh, 25 years later, so 10 years ago from from now, uh, I did an analysis of the video, and I did uh, zone entries, just using modern methods to try try and try and tease out some of these differences. Oh wow! And the Russians were very much uh, attack the zone in possession of the puck. None of this dump it in and and go and get it back. And uh, I wrote a post on it. You can probably Google it. Vintage hockey through a modern lens, and then some sub subtitle about Canada and Russia and the Canada Cup, and just talking, trying to try and analyze it with modern metrics. So we just did a video review. David Staples, my uh, my um, colleague at the Cult of Hockey, also did a project on that uh, series at that time. And the KLM line, like. <clears throat> They only came in over the blue line in possession. Like way over 90% of their zone entries were under control. And this was a time zone entries themselves were really just starting to starting to be uh, analyzed in this business of, you know, uh, zone entries with control as opposed to giving up control. You know, dumping it in, playing dump and thump, try and get it back on the, you know, on the deep in the other team, sand off the you know, forechecking and turnovers versus just skilling it in over the line and skilling right. it from there, you know, maybe it might take 15 passes the way the Russians played with all these little drop passes and and fancy uh, uh, perimeters. You know, they played ticky-tacky, you know, what Barcelona did in soccer. That was a, a little bit of the, the Russian style in hockey. Whereas Canada, they weren't quite, quite the... Uh, rugged individualists that were on that 1972 team, you know, with uh, Phil Esposito and Bobby Clark uh, uh, and uh, uh, players that were sort of front and center on that team. Uh, the Canadian team had a tremendous amount of skill, as you say, the five Hall of Fame Oilers, of course, the great Mario Lemieux in one great of his few appearances for, uh, uh, for Team Canada. Yeah, and actually winding up on the same line with Wayne Gretzky in a, in a hockey fan's dream. It's a shame those two never got to play together more. I mean, I think the mm-hmm. only other time they were ever teammates in their career was in the 1997 All-Star Game, mm-hmm. which, you know, 
isn't the same even close to right. being teammates for Team Canada, but just because of the unfortunate health situation with Mario Lemieux, they were denied that opportunity several more times. It just would have been incredible as their careers went on to see those two have the chance to play together more frequently. Yeah, Mar- well, Mario was, if I recall right, his next appearance at, for Team Canada was in the 2002 Olympics when they finally won the gold medal in uh, Salt Lake City. Yes, because he was unable to play things. in 91 and 96. Yeah. yeah, and then 98 Olympics as well. Yeah. Uh, he may have been he retired. That might have been retired at that time. Yeah. And Wayne was on the verge of retirement. And by 02, of course, Wayne was gone, but uh, Mario was still there and he made a famous dummy play on a pass from Chris Pronger to Paul Correa that uh, uh, produced a huge goal for Canada in the gold medal game where Mario let the pa- pass seem to be for him and he let it go through him to Paul Correa to, to Korea, yeah but, uh, but in the 87 Canada Cup he was just at the height of his you know just really burgeoning into the height of his powers he would win the scoring championship the next year breaking Gretzky's seven-year stranglehold still and just 21 in that tournament still win it again the year after that but in that tournament he played with uh, the master and he learned at the at the foot of the master and he was pretty masterful in his own right with uh, I think it was 11 goals and seven assists in the Canada Cup and second in scoring only to the great one And, you know, just on a side note, one of the reasons I'm most disappointed that Canada didn't or that the NHL players in general didn't go to the Olympics in 2018 was that I would have loved Connor McDavid to have the opportunity to play with Sidney Crosby while they were both still close to their peak abilities and have McDavid learn under Crosby, similar to the way that Mario did with Wayne uh, in 87. Yeah, yeah, no, that would that would have been good for sure. But uh, the last two Olympics now have uh, the games turned in a different way, and hopefully they'll get the World Cup back. They did have the World Cup in 2016, of course, but they uh, stashed McDavid on that Young Stars team. I know. So even there, didn't get to play with the best of Canada. He got uh, uh, sequestered, on, you know, on a different structure that they were trying, and you know they're. They they were trying to make an 18 tournament when they only really had six powerhouse countries. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of what they did. But uh, it was on the unfortunate offshoot was uh, uh, McDavid even at 19 as he was in, in 2016 was a very dominant player in that tournament. But we never did see him with uh, Sid. Yeah. Well, I mean, despite his rookie season being basically cut in half with a broken collarbone. McDavid finished third in the league in points per game average as a rookie. So if if there hadn't been that young stars team, I'm almost certain that he would have yeah. earned earned a spot on Team Canada by merit. Yeah, he would have been Mario Lemieux in 87 all over again. Young, but so even younger. So as not to be denied. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or Wayne in 81, you know. Right. Or he was uh he was 20. And led the tournament player, in scoring. Led the tournament in scoring. He well, he led he played four Canada Cups, Gretzky, and he led all four of them in scoring. I mean, but that's what he did. Just remarkable. And you know, Bruce, uh, there's been some great rivalries on the international stage over the years. Uh, definitely in, in the past two decades, the United States has obviously been Canada's greatest rival in both men's and women's hockey. But during the 1970s and 1980s, Canada and the Soviet Union undoubtedly had the most intense rivalry in international hockey. Not no question, 
And I mean, the only one that I would say came close uh, was uh, Soviet Union against Czechoslovakia in the 70s. That was a dynamite rivalry. Uh, it was, uh, they hated one another. Like they were geographic neighbors, kind of like Canada and the US were, but the, you know, they had a, a recent history of uh, of disagreement and strife i mean the prague spring in 1968 uh that led to Yarmar jagger's choice of number for his whole career by the way mm-hmm. uh was um uh just the moment that kind of put it on the boil those two teams met in the 69 world championship two times and czechoslovaks won both games and they were just dynamite they were just given everything they had to to, to win those games, like super high intensity, pure, you can see a hatred, war on ice, uh, as, as it was described then. And the Canada-Russia, or Canada-Soviet Union series in 72 had many elements of that as well. Um, I would say by 87, uh, some of those edges had worn, sort of been, been filed down to uh, mutual respect. And I mean, they they each hated and feared each other, um, but I think there you know there was uh, um, there was also some you know just, just shared respect for how good they were, and, and certainly the the uh, on the talent level that '87 Team Canada uh, I would suggest was well clear of the '72 Summit Series team, even as that had you know all the top players in the NHL at that time other than the injured Bobby Orr. Well, in 87, Wayne Gretzky wasn't injured, neither was Mario Lemieux. And then, as you say, Bork, Coffey, uh, Larry Murphy was on that team, Messier, Anderson, Howard, Chuck, Fury, on and on, like lots of big, big-time big star players. And it was a high-skill uh, two teams, uh, and they played a high-octane game. All three games in that final series were 6-5. to five. Yeah. I mean, when more than half of the roster goes on to be inducted into the <laughs> Hockey Hall of Fame, yeah, kind of tells you the level of team that you're watching. Yeah, yeah, they they were uh, they were unreal good, and they were in deep. It was all they could do to scrape out that series. They were, they were uh, in many ways fortunate to to uh, uh, to come out on top. And there was more familiarity between the Soviets, too. That was an obvious advantage as well, right? I mean, it's not like the Canadian squad played together on a consistent basis. There were some teammates in that tournament, but by and large, it was an all-star team of the best players in the NHL put together compared to a Soviet team that had played together for years and years. Yeah, well, certainly the Russian... um uh, the, the, the center core of the of Soviet Union national team came from the Central Red Army team, now known as CSKA Moscow and, and uh, KHL. Uh, but that that team, the entire great green unit, which arguably were the five best players in, in Russia, uh, played for Central Red Army on the league team. Never mind the, you know, like they were intimately familiar with each other because they played 50 games a year together, not just, you know, they didn't just sort of meet up the week before the World Championship. Yeah. They were they were teammates the entire time. And I mean, Central Red Army, I mean, think about it, Soviet Union. I mean, you want to talk about a team that was built through the draft. Uh, I'll take a Central <laughs> Red Army from uh, uh, 
from the uh, Soviet Union. I mean, they they wanted a player. He showed up in Red Army the next year. And they played some exhibition games in Edmonton, too, didn't they, in the 1980s? Yeah, they, in the 70s and 80s, they did. Yeah, I, I saw an exhibition game between uh, uh Russian national team and the Oilers, WHA Oilers. I think it would have been 78. And uh, this was the team that, you know, they had Yakushev, they had Petrov, Karlamov, uh, uh, Mikhailov, that whole line. They had Trechak, although he didn't play, unfortunately, in the game that I saw in Edmonton. He played against the Jets the next day because uh, they wanted to beat the league champs. <laughs> and they beat the Oilers 3-2 and they beat the Jets 3-2. But they were darn good games. And uh, it was it was a real thrill to see that whole team. You know, that mm-hmm. was, they were so different. We went down and watched... And we were hardly alone, like probably 10,000 people watched pregame warm-up. Right. Because the Russians were famous for doing pregame warm-ups that were just totally different from everything that, you know, none of this line rushes and everybody takes a slap shot on the goalie from the top of the face-off circle. They were doing all kinds of inventive stuff. And most of it they actually got from Lloyd Percival, uh, a Bible, the hockey handbook that was written like in 1950 or so. Uh, that they'd gotten from Canada, and they'd taken it to heart, all the drills and stuff that he did, and they added in, they did land training, dry land training. That was a big thing then. Who trains off the ice? Don't you just put your skates on and play? <laughs> you know, they, they just... Ahead of their time, for entire, sure. Yes, very much so. And so th- th- there was an element of that. I know uh, Oilers did play and beat uh, <clears throat> Soviet top Soviet team 4-3. to three. I think it was around 83 Gretzky had a pair of goals, and I think Messi and Anderson each scored and had a couple of apples, and it was, you know, it was a fun game for everybody. And and uh, it was all the rising powerhouse Oilers could do to 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 come out on top of that. And then they played them again when they were champs and got beat. So those international games were very much in flavor. There used to be touring teams most years where two touring teams would come from. Uh, Russia and play series of games against NHL teams, and they'd all be on TV, and they'd get great ratings. Like people just ate up that international. Oh, I can stuff. imagine. No, I did. Uh, I still do to some degree, but it's now very much a back burner compared to what it was then, where it was oh, international hockey's tournament time, you know, and it's it then and and not World Junior, but you know, these are the pros uh, playing each other. And anyway, it was. Uh, uh, it was a different time for the game, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about game one of the best of three final now at the Montreal Forum. Trailing 4-1 in the second period, Canada rallied to tie the game 4-4, setting up a wild finish that required extra time. Unfortunately, the home side came out on the wrong side of that score in an otherwise very entertaining game, Bruce. Yeah, it was, uh, and uh, I'm trying to remember, was it COVID? It was the guy who scored the winning goal in overtime, and it was about six minutes into overtime, and he just roofed a great shot uh, from, uh, uh, and just beat Fear clean over the blocker and in the, into the roof of the net from the sort of between the circles kind of shot. Number 30, I think, right-hand shot for Russia. I can't remember his name offhand. Uh, You're the top of the circles, right? It wasn't Kaminsky, but, uh, you know, Kaminsky, he did his damage. He scored a brilliant goal in that series as well. But uh, uh, this, uh, anyway, just like that, it seemed like Canada had come from behind. They got the game under control, and all of a sudden, boom, they lost. And now they're, you know, 
I'm gonna have to beat the Russians. I gotta beat them twice. Mm-hmm. Can't lose. And either the game, they're clearly behind the eight ball after that uh, after that game one defeat. And Gretzky had the game winning, or sorry, go ahead goal, I should yes. say, with with about a minute and a half remaining. But the Russians responded, I think, with twenty two seconds left on the clock to tie it. Yeah, I don't have the summary in front of me. Was that the one? Kaminsky got this fantastic tying goal. In, in one of the games, I think it might might have been. Uh, anyway, it was uh, all of these games. You know, it, one team would put a nose in front, and the other team would yeah. have the answer for it. And it was five to five with the game on the line. Uh, and two of them went to overtime. The third one went to you know minute and a half to play. Five 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 mm-hmm. five. Like it wasn't like six three, and they got a couple late ones to make it close. This was you know <laughs> everything on the line. <laughs> right. The stretch. Uh, so after a heartbreaking loss in Game 1, Canada needed to win Game 2, as you mentioned, at Cops Coliseum in Hamilton to stay alive in the tournament. And this game proved to be a thrilling back-and-forth affair by two incredibly talented hockey teams. Wayne Gretzky has even called it the best game he ever played. Bruce, as a hockey historian and huge Gretzky fan, do you agree that this was perhaps the Great One's single greatest performance? <laughs> Uh, I think you can make a strong case that it was his greatest international game uh, with five assists. I think they were all primary assists to uh, the last three to Mario got the hat trick, including the winner. Uh, I can tell you 10 07 of the second overtime. Like they played 30 minutes of overtime where a single goal against Grant Fear was lights out and a 2 nothing sweep against in the series. Uh, but Gretzky and Lemieux were indomitable. This was, I think, the game where Keenan put them together for keeps. And they were just, uh, uh, Mario was such a great finisher. And, of course, Gretzky was a salad man, non-pareal. And uh, they they clicked. And when they did, they were were pretty unstoppable. And then finally, they they were able to, uh, uh, you know, rather than the Russians coming back to tie it up again, uh, once they scored in overtime, of course, the game was over. So this was true sudden death. Where Double overtime, in fact. Minutes, yeah, 30, 30 minutes of overtime. Halfway through the second overtime period before they finally were able to uh, uh, lift home the winner. And a, a very a thrilling game. They had, that really had a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, uh, like better than game three, honestly. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that it might be Gretzky's greatest game on the international stage. There are probably c- countless examples from his NHL career that you could point to. But it, from the interview that I watched with Gretzky talking about this game, the reason why he singled it out as perhaps the best he ever played was because of the level of competition that they were going up against, where it was as good of a team as he had ever played in his career. And to put up five assists against them in a do-or-die game where Canada was on the verge of elimination, uh, I think that played a big part in why he feels that it was maybe uh, his best hockey game. Yeah, well, it's hard to argue. I mean, he had, uh, I think, 21 points in that uh, Canada Cup, and I think that's that's probably the record for that tournament. Yeah. 
I, I think it's also the record for um, points in a best on best international tournament altogether. Of any type? Yeah, it wouldn't surprise yeah. me. I mean, 21 points in what was it, nine games they played. And but this was the this was the high watermark for sure with all those uh, all those primary assists. Mm-hmm. And after splitting the first two games by identical six five scores, Canada fell behind three nothing early in game three. But Bruce, once again, they fought their way back into the game, and in the end, the two best players in the game, Gretzky and Mario Lemieux, created one of the most memorable plays in Canadian sports history. Yeah. Yeah, it was a face-off in Canada's end with, uh, I think it was 1.36 to go. And uh, they uh, uh, they sent out three centers, Gretzky, Lemieux, and Dale Howarchuk. And Howarchuk, they won the puck and they broke out of their zone. And Howarchuk's key involvement uh, was uh, a play where he kind of picked off uh, one of the would be back checkers from Russia in a play that any uh, any self-respecting Soviet fan would tell you uh, should have been a penalty, uh, and they were probably right. But there, this was 5-5 five, five with two minutes left. You're going to call a penalty away from the puck? Not any referee I've ever seen. I mean, welcome to North <laughs> American refereeing there, Russians. Uh, and uh, so it was Hudson Bay rules, and Howard Chuck got away with that. And all of a sudden, it was a uh, it looked like a two on one with uh, with Larry Murphy and Gretzky. Uh, but Mario Gretzky had the puck on the left side. Most two on ones, he would have he would be on the right and passing across to the left to Curry. That's how I always seemed to mm-hmm. be doing that. But in this one, he had the puck on the left side. Murphy was charging up the ice to his right. And all of a sudden, Mario comes up into the rush as the third man, three on one. I mean, it's a big mistake to give up a three on one, even if one guy was interfered with. And uh, Wayne had a choice between passing the puck to Larry Murphy or Mario Lemieux. Tough choice. Uh, he made the right one. <laughs> he sent it back to big number 66, and he shrugged his shoulders, top corner. 126 to play, Dan Kelly. I still remember his call on that. This was maybe his high water mark as an announcer in the Cops Coliseum in, in Hamilton. Uh, that made it 6 5. And of course, this wasn't overtime, so they still had 86 tenths seconds to go through. Uh, but it felt, in many ways, it felt like the Henderson goal in 72. Once they finally got it, got that lead 6 to 5. That that was going to be it, and uh, in both cases, that was just played play out to the end. But the 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 dramatics of that goal, and the, you know, to have those two guys, mm-hmm. both of them, be you know, like key players, one scores on a pass from the other. You know, you couldn't really ask for a, a better, more fitting ending than that. And they didn't play so well in game three as they had in game two, and this was a game that. Game three, where they fought from behind uh, uh, a big deficit, uh, that uh, they got some scoring from secondary players. You know, Rick Tockett, another great player that was uh, uh, further down the lineup. I remember him pounding home one of the goals to get him kind of back in the game. And this was a very much a, a team effort. Uh, but after you know, the team had a very very dodgy start. And they were able to overcome it. And when push came to shove, like I think Wayne only only had two assists in this game. 
second one was the uh, a cup winner. Yeah. And uh, as we briefly talked about before, for the third straight Canada Cup, Gretzky led the 1987 tournament in scoring with 21 points in only nine games. He was obviously named tournament MVP, deservingly so. Uh, Bruce, this was Gretzky's finest moment on the international stage. And I think we can surely say one of the biggest moments of his entire career too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this was, uh, I mean, at the, he was at the, at the pinnacle and, and really this was a, you know, a multi-year string, but consider that in both, uh, uh, 84, 85, and then again in 87, 88, uh, the several members of the Edmonton Oilers, and I think there was eight of them, on the 84 Canada Cup team, because they had Randy Gregg and, and uh, Kevin Lowe uh, on that team, uh, that uh, uh, won the Cup, won the other Cup, then won the first Cup again in like 12 months. Yeah. Can- Stanley Cup, Canada Cup, Stanley Cup. I mean, these are intense, long seasons. Uh, with extra, you know, high-intensity hockey in September, I mean, they just won the Cup in May. And and they had to come back and it took them a while to get dialed in, as is typical with Canada and international tournaments of all sorts. Uh, but they had uh, um, they uh, they managed to get it done in '84. They beat the Russians in semifinal in one single sudden death game, and then they beat the Swedes in the final. You know, the '84 Canada Cup final game was played in Northlands Coliseum in Edmonton. I I had to pleasure of attending that game so i actually saw all three of those cups in oh nice 84, 84 85 awarded whereas in 87 88 i was uh had to watch the one on tv but the other two were also in edmonton all home wins right those the four gretzky cups were all home wins so yeah particularly memorable but for gretzky himself you know he set up the cup winning goal in the Stanley cup and then he set up the cup winning goal in the Canada cup and that was just wayne being wayne setting <laughs> up goals and bruce my final one for you tonight mm-hmm. because of the amount of speed and skill on both the canadian and soviet teams yep. the 1987 canada cup has been called by many the best hockey that's ever been played I don't think that anything will ever touch the 1972 Summit Series in terms of importance, but where does this tournament rank in your lifetime as a hockey fan? Well, as a hockey spectacle, very high, very high. I mean, you're talking about those 12 Hall of Famers on Team Canada, and I talked about all the superstars on the Russian Green Unit, and they had many more good players than that, of course, on that team. Uh, But... I think in terms of just raw talent on display, uh, it's pretty hard to find higher than that. And it was, uh, uh, and this was, you know, right on the heels of the 87 Stanley Cup final, which I consider to be one of the very greatest Stanley Cup finals in my lifetime, the 87 Stanley Cup. I mean, the, the game of hockey was at a very high point after uh, struggling in many respects through the 70s. So rapid was the expansion. You know, there were six teams in 1966-67, major league teams, and there was 32 of them in 1974-75, just eight years later. And, I mean, the talent was spread pretty thinly. Remember them used to saying, you know, tonight the Oilers are playing Rosaire Paymont and the, and the uh, Chicago Cougars. 
Okay, that's their poster boy. Okay, uh, but uh, there was plenty of poster boys in uh, well, both the '87 Stanley Cup Finals and the Canada Cup Finals. It was a, it was a high water mark mark for hockey and especially for uh, uh, players and fans in this city. Oh, without a doubt, um, Bruce. I just want to thank you again for being on the show tonight and sticking with me for nearly two and a half hours of oh. hockey talk. <laughs> it's always uh, great hearing these stories. You're one of my favorite guests because of the great information you can provide and the storytelling from what was not just the best period of time in Oilers history, but one of the most entertaining times in the history of the game. So it's always great to hear these stories, and hopefully we can uh, do this again sometime and talk more about uh, the great glory days of the past. Yeah, well, these were many of the greatest players of all time. We were we were very blessed mm-hmm. to, to have so many of them in one place, uh, sort of peaking together at the same time. That uh, uh, and uh, I personally so very blessed to walk into my season tickets when I did and hold them throughout the '80s and see almost all of these games in in person. And mm-hmm. I was just yep. soaking it up as probably tell and it's a lot of it's stuck like a lot of these memories they seem fresh mm-hmm. even though there were 35 years ago that we're marking the 35 anniversary i guess of that Canada cup so right and i sort of inherited becoming a wayne gretzky fan because my dad got me a gretzky jersey for my first birthday in 1990 mm-hmm. but obviously because of the time that i was born i missed out on the entire Gretzky's entire time in Edmonton. I, I was alive for the fifth and final Stanley Cup, but uh, he I'm hope- on the team. he wasn't on the team by then. Um, and I'm hopeful that uh, we'll get to see at least one Stanley Cup during the 2020s. Uh, it, it'll never compare to what the they did in the 80s, but uh, this city after three decades is uh, ready for uh, another championship and we might just see it next spring. Yeah, we're poised in better position than we've been in a very long time. You know, we've, there's been lots of down years since, but uh, uh, still, you know, Edmonton's been very fortunate on balance all, over all these years with uh, all the Hart Trophy winners and champion teams, scoring champions, and so on that we've had. We've had a, a very, uh, 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 very good time of it by and large, even with the decade of darkness. Mm-hmm. And now we're very definitely coming out of that in a team with a, you know a nice core group, maybe not quite as uh, many great great players as there was in that uh, uh, mid '80s team, but uh, uh, still still you know a couple of real transcendent talents and yeah, uh, they're they're a joy to watch. And when you have players like Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl at the apex of their abilities, and without a doubt the deepest team around them since they've been in the NHL, this is the time to make it count and really take a a good shot at winning a Stanley Cup. Yeah, let's hope so. All right, Bruce, thanks again. Have a good night. All right. Thanks very much, Eric. It's been been a real pleasure. All right. So for Bruce McCurdy, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.